WWF superstars competing the Royal Rumble for the undisputed WWF Championship, including Jake the Snake Roberts, the Barbarian, the model Rick Martel, the Berserker, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Nasty Boy Sags, Repo Man, Sergeant Slaughter, alleged real-world champion Ric Flair, Hercules, Colonel Mustafa, the Macho Man Randy Savage, Skinner, the British Bulldog Baby Boy Smith, the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, Haku, Shawn Michaels, the Warlord, El Matador, Sid Justice, IRS, Nikolai Volkov, the Texas Tornado, Virgil, the Undertaker, the Big Boss Man, Greg the Hammer Valentine, Superfly Snooker, and the Immortal Hulk Hogan. It's time to rumble! It's time for the Royal Rumble! Starting with the classic Royal Rumble rundown by Vince McMahon. Well, one thing that popped into my head when he's still in the rundown, all I could think is like, Imagine this cum noise. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine the noise? Well, I, I don't want years, to. And years, his face. definitely heard it. Yeah. yeah. He definitely heard it. He's done it at some point on a WWF show. Somewhere oh. along the line. The thing is, he's made so many noises, though, that, that it could be any of them. And you won't, won't know when you're watching it that it is that one. Imagine that. Imagine the look on Linda's face as he's bearing down on her. Red-faced veins popping out the side of his neck. <laughs> Terrifying image, really. Well, after the, uh, after the group therapy session that we all needed after sold out, we may need another one already after this. Welcome once again to the Random Wrestling Review. This is our third show now. We're already uh, two for oh, two for oh, oh for two in terms of uh, good shows um, that we've had to cover. Not not good shows that we've done, that we've recorded, but good shows that we've been covering. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had Royal Rumble 1995, which I think we all agreed was slightly mediocre, just under average. And then, then last week, we saw what was possibly the worst show in the history of professional wrestling. WWE sold out 1997. Um, this week, though, we've tried to manufacture some positivity because um, a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, um, at RWRPodUK, we asked you to tell us what your favourite Royal Rumble match of all time was. Um, 1992 Royal Rumble won, the one where Ric Flair wins not only the 30-man Rumble, but the World Championship at the same time. And so we thought, why not just cover that scene? Is apparently the best there's ever been. So to help me do that, I've got a couple of heavenly bodies on the pod today. Firstly, I have old man, the gigolo, Sam Carey. Sam, how are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you, Ben. I've uh, I've been looking forward to this week. I, I think, as you so eloquently put it, the last couple of weeks have been uh, not challenging. They've been very enjoyable talking about it with you guys. But it's been good to sit down this week and watch a show that I know brings back a lot of memories from my childhood and when I first got into wrestling and just watch something very enjoyable so yeah and we also have the doctor Tom Smith I wanted a way to make again you're you're not only is your name so generic Tom but it's also monosyllabic in both 
both forename and surname. Just not, you can't do anything with it. But you are Dr. Tom, at least, just like Tom Pritchard from the Heavenly. So, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I guess he was, he was all right, wasn't he? He wasn't bad. Bruce's yeah, brother. Not, yeah, that's probably the high point, isn't it? <laughs> Bruce Pritchard's brother. Poor Tom, what, poor Tom what, Pritchard. He, he, he now runs a wrestling school with Glenn Jacobs, a.k.a. Kane, a.k.a. Dr. Isaac Yankum. Oh, AKA okay, so, fake diesel. Yes, yes. So I want to I want to hone in on the, the fact that there's uh, two PhD candidates, uh, <laughs> you know, running a wrestling school, a waste of time. It was like when that um, Canadian guy, Doctor Tim, won MasterChef and he gave up being a pediatrician. Yeah, just absolute waste of his gifts. Um, so I guess I don't, you know, I don't want us to kind of get bogged down again, but I just wondered if you guys had recovered from last week's show. Yeah, I'm still. It, it almost felt like therapy last week to to talk about the Miss NWO pageant. And unlike therapy, it's haunting me. The horrendous production values, the horrendous interview segments, the chauvinism, the toilet, but most of all, <laughs> the kiss. The Thank Bischoff you. kiss. Is, it's ingrained on my memory. He's almost broken down. He's almost broken down talking about this. Yeah. I, I think I'll move on as quick, quick as I can, Tom. If you're all right with me not to come to you on that one, I think I'll just move on. Well, I just wanted to quickly mention that there is one disappointment in this um, in this pay-per-view that I did miss, which uh, which was obviously a big highlight of the last one. It's the fact that there's no you know grey hoodie tucked into jeans in this one. <laughs> there's not. I'm sure there's other things there that we'll find fashion faux pas and hair styles that we can comment on all the same so yeah we were covering royal rumble 1992 today and uh i should hope a, a fair bit more positivity as they say for what we covered today as usual want to kind of get your overall thoughts on the pay-per-view uh what you thought kind of uh, as a sort of summary um let's start with you tom this week oh well for a start we're back back at home aren't we <laughs> let's be honest we, we've gone away last week we're back at home which is nice let's put on an old jumper First thing, straight away, honestly, Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan get straight in my veins. <laughs> I need it. My, it's my elixir. I need it. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, it's it's a good card and the, the very good card actually. Well, there's good good rumble match. The the undercard's fine. Um, but I'd like to. There's a couple of bits that I, that kind of come through the entire show, and I don't want to give it away now because it's more apparent in the rumble match itself. But yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Good, good, good stuff. Great start. Old man, your thoughts? Yes, I echo Tom's thoughts. The thing that caught me off guard were the Colosseum video exclusives that they have on the uh, showing on the WWE Network, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah. And uh, I think we'll touch upon it later. I enjoyed it for a reason that I wasn't expecting. Oh, yeah, which is some, which is something to tantalise the listeners' taste buds, or maybe earbuds with. Another another teaser from old man. Yeah, does it every, it, does it every week. Yeah, and Ben, what about you? Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Look, come on, this is this is iconic. This is a, an iconic show. We're Rumble Night Night Two. Um, the Ric Flair victory. Uh, the Rumble match itself is is a, a, a very very high quality Royal Rumble match. The undercard's not bad. I think it's a little bit spotty in places, but we'll get into that in a bit. Um, I agree. I enjoyed Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan. I think probably more from. No, I was going to say more from a um 
uh, nostalgia perspective than anything else. But actually, I think that would be unfair. I did genuinely um, d- did genuinely enjoy just their commentary uh, and the things they were saying. So, yeah, I mean, it's very hard because this is almost as positive as this is definitely as positive as we've been so far about any show. And when you're re- being really positive, the only thing you can do is go into the specifics. And I don't want to do that yet because we're not quite there so i'll just leave it on that point saying look this is an iconic show so it's a very enjoyable show and uh yeah definite step up on what we've previously experienced on our podcast so um let's get into the uh the stuff that's on the show starting with the classic royal rumble rundown by vince mcmahon that kicks the show off this isn't the first time he does it i think he's done it on i think he does it on the 1991 and possibly even the 1990 paper pay-per-view as well but it's tremendous. I think we will all agree. Uh, old man, you're nodding your head. I don't know how better to word it apart from hearing a grown man shout <laughs> over various faces that come onto the screen. Some of the faces being made by the wrestlers are unbelievable. Berserker, Haxel Jim Duggan, Jerry Sags, Sergeant Slaughter, Hercules, Matchman Randy Savage, Skinner, Warlord, all look severely constipated. <laughs> Very much so. And Jimmy Fly Snooker looks horrified at what he's just done to the toilet. Look at his face. He looks like he's looked down in the bottom. It's been like fuck. This is why I. Th- this is what Vince brings, in my opinion, is enthusiasm no end no matter what's going on he'll bring the enthusiasm and obviously this is the rumble so it's a particularly exciting point in the calendar anyway, but. They, but he just his excitement and his enthusiasm just ramps up even further. He can take it to the next level because he has just got that much enthusiasm for everything that's going on in the product. And I think, you know, I think sometimes that's to his detriment in terms of when he's writing it and when he's booking it sometimes because he's so enthusiastic for it that he can't see the flaws sometimes in what he's actually presenting. But when he puts it onto the screen, when he himself brings that enthusiasm onto the screen, it's gold. And I think that is what we get from this Rumble rundown in the first place i also have to be thankful that for this um one i think is it 89 or 1990 he reads out all of the people who are in the rumble in order that they come out as well and i'm quite glad he doesn't do that this time (laughs) as well um so let's move on to the opening uh, opening match of the night which sees the new foundation owen hart and jim the anvil Nightheart, against the orient express uh cracking little match this one um Owen Hart and Jim Yanville get the uh, get the victory. Oh man, thoughts on this one? Right, the first thing that struck me, God rest his soul, is Owen Hart. Sorry, Anvil, I know he's dead as well, but God, God rest Owen Hart's soul because he's doing stuff in this match that I can remember as a kid, just thinking, I've never seen this. What's he up to on those ropes? And when he dives through the ropes, I legitimately, even though I've seen it ten or twelve times. I legitimately thought he was going to kill himself. Like he pelts through those ropes and lands on either Kato or Tanaka. But it was it's tremendous. It's just classic tag team wrestling. It is. It's it just is. just really, really good. And you want Mr. Fuji on the sideline just laughing. He just <laughs>, laughs. That's all he does. It's a 17 minute match, so it's, it's abnormally long as well. Um opening encounter of the show. And uh it's one of those ones that I, I think has passed me passed over my head in the past. I've seen this show obviously a number of times, um, and but I I'd never I've never kind of acknowledged how good this is until this this watch. I think it is a cracking little opener. Um, Tom, any thoughts? 
Neidhart is the perfect foil for Owen Hart. It, well, he was a perfect foil for Brett as well, but even more so, I think, for, for Owen, because Owen Hart was so much more of an aerial-based wrestler, rather, obviously, versus Brett. Um, they they complement each other so well. There's like just little bits, like when he's like pretty impressed as well, because he was a big lad. He's pretty short, wasn't he, old Neidhart? But he was a big lad. And the, the way he, he he slingshots into the ring, doesn't he, to shoulder bite someone at some point? Like he he does his bit in the match as well. Like the hot tag, especially towards the end, is brilliant. He just comes in, clears the ring, does a great job, gives Owen enough time to recover, and then they beat him for splash. Um, both entrance music are absolutely fire. I was a big <laughs> fan of the Orient Express's music, and I was a big fan of the um of the uh, the new Foundations music, and I was also a big fan of their jackets as well. Oh. The lime green jackets, which I, I, can't, I still can't get my head around how they actually work. Um, but they were, it was, it was great. It was just little things like Owen Hart's selling of his shoulder injury after Mr. Fuji puts the cane into the turnbuckle and he gets run into it and, and so but he's still selling it and looks legitimately really pissed off at the end of the match about yeah. it as well. It was, yeah, it was just fun. It was just a great classic kind of WWF style tag team match. Yeah, it was, it, it was. And I think um, what's really interesting here, what really stood out for me is comparing it to either of the two shows we've watched in the past on this podcast so far, just the level of investment from the crowd instantly. Um, here, this, these aren't top level guys. These aren't even really mid card guys. These are like bottom of bottom of the card type guys who will pretty much always either be in the opener or the second match. Um, and yet there's a clear understanding from the fans who they're supposed to cheer for who they're supposed to boo and they do and they get behind Owen Hart and Jim Neidart they give Jim Neidart gets a big pop just from the fact that he's got that history with Brett um and the Orient Express are clearly defined as heels and as a consequence even though this last 17 minutes and the, the crowd are predominantly families with lots of children they're into it all the way there's no boredom it's it's just full investment and really, really strong tag team action. And it's one of those matches where actually I struggle a little bit to to, de- to determine exactly where I see it in terms of how how good it is. Because it's very easy to write off these kind of early 90s WWF tag team matches as being kind of um, technically quite good, but not very um, spectacular. But as I've aged, those are the kinds of matches that I really yearn for more and more. Is just these really technically sound matches with really well built, really well paced matches that that just kind of fly by and are just so easy on the eye and so easy to watch. And this is exactly what it is. And for that reason, I, I kind of really want to give it like a, a high star rating just because I think it's it's it is a really excellent match. Well, like you touched upon it there with the crowd. I think they get that through the whole show. Like you said, the pacing is just bang on because the crowd are never, they're never more than about 3% off of exploding, I think. They're just, I mean, there's a, there's a bit in the rumble that we'll come to that is so perfect. When I was watching it, it almost brought a tear to the eye. Because they'd built the crowd up so much and it brought back so many memories of watching it as a kid. And yeah, like watching this match and then the rest of the card just made me yeah, remember why I fell in love with it initially and why I'd watch it with my mum and my two sisters. As, as I touched upon the, uh, and it was last week on the first episode. Yeah, it was just like the excitement of everything. Yeah, he's back. WCW tried to kill it. 
the NWO tried to kill last week, but it's been thrown back. <laughs> Um, it's interesting. I mean, as well, you think about we talked about the Royal Rumble '95 episode, the um, potential for Owen Hart and Jim Neidart to have got to the final of that tournament and gone up probably against one, two, three, kid and Bob Holly. Imagine what that match would have been had it been Owen Hart and Jim Neidart against them. Um, and this is what this is. We kind of got a, a taste for what it would have been in this in this in this match. Um, interestingly enough, as well, only about a week after this, Jim Neidart was out of the company. Um, talk again going back to Tom's kind of hiring and firing comment the other week about how Jim Neidart just constantly moved in and out of the company and of course the the attire that Owen and Jim Neidart had was then moved on to high energy which uh, would be mm-hmm. Owen Hart and Coco Beware which was uh, I guess the the next idea that WWF had for um, uh, for Owen because what else was he going to do at this time and um, and so, yeah, a, a, a shame, I suppose, because ultimately on both occasions when this tag team looked like they could have been kind of ready to break out and do something interesting, Jim Neidart was gone from the company within a matter of weeks or months. Well, Jim Neidart was considerably bigger with Coco. So do you think they made brand new trousers for him? Or do you I, think he then tailored the ones that we already had uh, Neidart worn? Neidart they, were, worn? <laughs> they were a different colour. I think they were different, kind of just all different saying oh, that those bunny bags of a man <laughs> saying that those trousers were very baggy on coco so who knows mm. like can you imagine being owen hart he obviously he's in the family so he'll know that the amber is probably on his way out and he's like i wonder who they're gonna put me with and then they old vince calls me he's like come on owen i've got your tighty partner and then he just opens up a door just like it's a game show and coco beware stood there Owen Hart goes, not the fucking Birdman. Not the <laughs> fucking Birdman. Fuck off. <laughs> and then, obviously, after Owen's passed away, Coco Beware takes his rightful place in the Hall of Fame. And where's <laughs> Owen Hart, eh? Where's Owen Hart? Wow. Strong words. Strong words. <laughs> I, do, I do think that last week damaged him just a little bit, if I'm honest. Um. So yeah, lovely little opening match. Really, really, uh, really nice stuff. Um, then we had the build up to the Mountie and Roddy Piper's match for the Intercontinental title. Now, um, before we get into this, what had happened just about uh, from the clips that we saw about a day or two before the Royal Rumble, um, Bret Hart lost the Intercontinental title to the Mountie. The storyline was that Bret um, had a temperature of 104 degrees, which um, Bobby Heenan great, took great delight in saying that he'd wrestled with a 113 degree temperature. Um, so that was no excuse. Um, and so the Mountie was the champion. And after the match, he continued to attack Bret Hart. Um, Roddy Piper came out to make the save. And then when Piper turned his back on the Mountie, the Mountie attacked Piper too. Um, and so this match was booked for the Royal Rumble, for the Intercontinental Championship. And we had a couple of pre-match interviews with the Mountie and Roddy Piper. I know, old man, you were quite eager to talk about the interview so i'm going to give you a chance to do so now well the first thing that struck me i mean not only is the the videotape that they show that is basically what you've just broken down for the listener is tremendous but better than that is the amount of makeup that lord alfred hayes is wearing (laughs) like he it's unbelievable how much makeup he has on and then he does his little introduction for the for the matches and then they go to the interviews and that this will be a theme for i think probably two of us our dislike of rowdy roddy piper it's just absolute 
dirt and he's dirt on the microphone and I, I really like it. But the Mountie says some interesting because he's going on. He's getting quite angry, the Mountie, and started shouting like he was prone to do. He starts talking about win-loss record and how Piper shouldn't get a match because his win-loss record is so poor. I just thought it was a very interesting angle to come at. And it's obviously like, it's kind of like the cowardly heel kind of way. And uh, then it tweaked that he's carrying a cattle prod. And I didn't really understand why he was so worried. Because you just cattle prod him in the back, when you? When, <laughs> like, like when he's on the way down to the ring. Well, he didn't use that cattle prod in the end. I'm assuming that um, you and and Tom both don't like Piper then. Is this, is this a thing? I, I just, I don't, I've never got him. That's not necessarily a particular dislike of him. I just don't get it. I don't understand why he's so over. That being said, there, there's a bit that I will talk about later that I did thoroughly enjoy with Piper. But in terms of his like in-ring work, I've never been a big fan of him. He just he talks very strangely on the microphone. Not even Scottish. Um, that he would <laughs> pretend to put on an accent. I don't know. It's I just I never got it. I never got it. But what what I would like to touch back on, which I thought old man was going to go for, is that at one point, um, Mountie says, "I'm going to take your manhood," which <laughs> I thought was a very very questionable thing to say. And then what I did actually like, to be honest, to, to counterbalance what I said just then, um, in Piper's retort, he you know, Mountie says, "I'm going to take your integrity. I'm going to take your manhood. Then I'm going to take the title or something like that." And Piper says, you say you're going to take my integrity. Well, you can't do that because I haven't got any integrity. And you're, not, you're going to take my manhood. And then he goes, oh, <laughs> gives a really weird look to me, Gene. It's brilliant. He just goes, oh, well, I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> yeah, he says, I don't, I, don't know what you're, I don't know what you're coming for. I've come here for a, for a wrestling match, which I thought, yeah. was, I thought was a pretty good response. Yeah, um, it's quite funny. I think it's interesting, Piper, because he's kind of, he's kind of, a star you you uh, i think last week tom you said that your kind of period is 1987 to 1990 and or your golden period if you like and by that point piper was basically retired i mean he retired yeah. at the at wrestlemania 3 for the first time i mean i know he returned again and again and again but by that point he had retired um from his sort of initial run as a wrestler and so i think we kind of missed a large part of what piper's kind of time was about um he was a big star, obviously, for the WWE in, in the mid-90s. It was a major part of WrestleMania's 1 and 2, um, and 3, I suppose, because his, his retirement match was quite a big deal. He'd previously been in Mid-Atlantic as well, where he'd been a kind of main event level star. His charisma, um, uh, again, it's kind of some of it, it's kind of like what I was saying about Vince as well um, a couple of weeks ago. Like, his charisma, I can understand why people find him a bit awkward later in time, but in the early 80s, like he was head and shoulders above most other people around because he could string a sentence together and, and be a little bit funny. And he had, yeah, it's something that set him apart because he has got a kind of, um, I don't know what the word is, but he's just got a kind of slight strange style about the way he talks. Um, but it just, it would just set him apart because he wasn't just shouting or wasn't just, you know, like tripping over his words every, every third word. And so, I think that's where, again, it's kind of a time thing. I think if you'd seen him at a certain time in his career, you might have a different viewpoint. But I think what happens is most of what we will have seen is the stuff later in his career when he wasn't as good as he had been in the past. Um, 
and even like we're talking about stuff in 1992 for example which was after the after at least one retirement into his career and also stuff in 1994 when he was a little bit older and then again in wcw in 97 and 98 like these are this is kind of piper as a shadow of what he previously was so it is one of those difficult ones i think sometimes when most of what you've seen of 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 his kind of stuff is is much way past his peak way past his prime you also talk about him standing out a bit but quite a lot from everyone else back then during this period as well you've got charismatic promos haven't you you've got hogan you've got macho man you've got uh jake roberts um you obviously got flair now as well regarded regarded as one of the best talkers of all time so there's quite a lot you know it's quite a lot in there as well for him to go against yeah, I think if you also if you consider like those those days before WWF went national and basically took all the top talent from everywhere in the country, um, these promos were scattered around the country. So they weren't all in one place. So if you had one guy who could talk, he did a load of talking and would appear regularly and would be in all the main feuds and all the main matches. Whereas now, as you just said, you could you could list them off the number of guys who can talk and can draw people in with their promo and they're all on the same show. They're all in the WWF at this time. So um yeah, it's just it's just a lot harder to to judge him on this period, I think, than you you might do if you if you saw some of his earlier stuff. Um, then the match itself for the Intercontinental, Intercontinental Championship only lasts five minutes, which is a little bit of a shame, I thought. But I guess um, Piper is doing double duty here. He's in the Rumble and in this match. Um, it's not bad. Um, Roddy Piper in the end taking the victory with a sleeper hold. Um, Tom, your thoughts on this match? <clears throat> it was all right. You know, it's, it wasn't very long, quite mercifully, but I didn't, I didn't massively enjoy it too much. But this is when... There's an element of this in the first match, but it's in the second match when they really start, when I really start to notice how good Heenan is. I mean, we all know that he was a magnificent commentator and a magnificent personality and talker generally, you know, throughout his entire career. But this is his, this pay-per-view throughout his entirety is his masterpiece. Um, he is the star of the show, in my opinion. And this is when they start talking about, one, you can already hear him starting to, starting to plant the seeds for him really digging into Bret Hart <laughs> later on in his career, which he did a lot, especially Stu. He always loved a bit of a God Stu. And he and really starts starts hyping up the rumble for Ric Flair as well in this match as well. Um, there's one bit that I did um, notice as well. The 104 degrees, that stuck in my head as well. And it reminds me of, um, there was the game, I think it was game five of the 1997 NBA finals between Michael Jordan and um, between the Utah Jazz and the Chicago Bulls, and Michael Jordan, it's the infamous flu game, where Michael Jordan was really ill, and they must say, flu-like symptoms, that old man will back me up on this, they must say flu-like symptoms every other minute in that one, (laughs) and I'm pretty sure that throughout this match, they say 104 degree temperature more times than anything (laughs) else, because it is mad, it really burnt into my brain at that point, Um, but it's, it's fine. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fine. Oh man, it's a five-minute match with Piper and the Man. Yeah. There's not much, right, is there? I mean, the the one thing that astonishes me is, even though what like we've just said about Piper, my God, is he over? Mm. I mean, the crowd are gagging for him, like absolutely. It's almost like Austin levels of gagging for him. Like when is when those bagpipes start? Oh my word, the crowd. Women dropping their pants. Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, the the thing that bothered me about the match, I, like, 
like Tom so eloquently put it, the match is uh, <laughs> like, it, it, it's five minutes and it happens. But there's a couple of times, and both of them do it, the old Mount Stern Piper, they get get them in a, a position where they should go for the pin, and they take bloody ages about it. They take absolutely ages to just walk over and then try and get a pin, and then they don't win. And uh, it's just, it was it was disappointing. It felt lazy. It felt lazy, and it really took me out of what was a match that I couldn't really give a toss about anyway. But it it, it at least invested me because it annoyed me. <laughs> And also, I, I, I was really annoyed that the catapult didn't get used because I was hoping that whoever was using it was going to shit themselves like 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 Rick Mel in bottom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he used it at the end. It's, it's a bit of a weird one, actually, because like this, and there's another couple of matches where they do this as well, where the babyface wins or the, or the match finishes and the babyface is doing pretty well for themselves and they continue to beat up the heel afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, you know, it's not very, it's not very sportsmanlike, is it? Yeah, but it's Roddy yeah. Piper, so he's, he's, he's. This is. There's a number of. I think you talked about how over he was. I think there are a number of reasons why this is, and and a lot of them have got to do with how well Piper um, politics for his own protection in terms of his presentation on screen. So this is one of them. Is that Roddy Piper is effectively plays the part of a tweener a lot of the time. Like he's not fully a baby face there is an edge to piper all the way through his career like after it becomes after he turns face in like uh late 86 um and you see that again at wrestlemania 8 for example when he faces bret hart for the intercontinental championship he's the one who plays the the heel in that match because he's effectively a tweener not that they had many of these kinds of roles at the time not only that but this was the first time piper had ever won a wwf championship title of any kind despite the fact that very very few people ever pinned roddy piper on television or or on major events like he just didn't he didn't suffer pinfall losses in fact his loss to bret hart at wrestlemania 8 is one of the first times it ever happened <laughs> tom celebrated that victory <laughs> like it happened yesterday um <laughs> but yeah it, it's 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 you know, it's one of the, I think those are some of the reasons why Piper saw over because he manages his own uh, the way he appears to the crowd and to the fans in a very kind of careful, controlled manner, which I actually respect an awful lot. I think it's a really it's something that um, Scott Hall's talked about in the past is never have never allowing anyone to kick out of the razor's edge, for example, it just wouldn't allow it because in his mind, you just don't you just don't let anyone kick out of your finish. It's, it's that simple. Um, and I, I really it depend you know it does depend whether or not it kind of harms the company overall. But I think when it's done the right way, and I think Piper did do it the right way most of the time. Um, I like it when when wrestlers are really invested in protecting the image that they give to the crowd because I think this is the result. You get wrestlers who are genuinely over as a consequence. To an extent, though. To an extent, there is you can go too far. Yeah. Um. The one thing I wanted to talk about the Mountie for a second. So we all know the best thing about the Mountie was his entrance music, and it used to sing oh. along to it. Oh yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have it on this one. I didn't notice that, but you're right. I didn't. Yeah, notice he didn't. Oh, yeah. it, it, it immediately, I'll be honest, put me on the back foot. I guess <laughs> I was like. Mm. 
Um, so, yeah, I was disappointed by that. And actually, this must be the only time in his career when he didn't sing his own theme tune, because obviously before that, it was one of the uh, the Rougeau brothers and they were the uh, All-American Real Boys. Also All-American their... Boys. <laughs> yeah, also sang their own um, entrance music. So, yeah, a real shame. Anyway, new Intercontinental Champion, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, up next, we get a Coliseum Home video exclusive with Lord Alfred Hayes interviewing Hulk Hogan in his uh, in his dressing room, I believe. Well, what's what I found so odd about this was hearing Hulk Hogan talk. He's I was watching it and I was like, oh, this is pleasant. And then I was like, he's not shouting. And he also mentions a cup of tea a couple of times, which is yeah. obviously classic playing on the uh, Lord Alfred Hayes being English. And uh, yeah, it was just uh, odd. A little bit unsettling, if I'm being yeah. honest. Yeah. And it also, almost... Lord, Lord Alfred Hayes is so fucking wooden as well. Oh. <laughs> and, and here I am with Hulk Hogan. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier in the show, he refers to Roddy Piper as the hotspot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, and this this is Lord Alfred Hayes, who has been an announcer in WWE for like a decade, like forever. He's been around for ages and ages. And Piper has been a major part of everything for loads of things WWE have done in that time. And he's like, and the hotspot, Rowdy Piper. And you're like, what is wrong with you? How could you be be doing that? Do we know if he's actually a lord? (laughs) I don't think so. Because bear in mind, we're in the presence of one now, Tinky. Yeah, we, we are. Do you not remember for, for my at my wedding for I gave old man as a best man's gift gift a uh, a square meter of land in Scotland that ah, he is yeah. the lord from. Completely forgot about that. Completely forgot about that. So yeah. so have you been to visit your square your square foot of land? I have, and I marked my territory on there. <laughs> I, I can imagine that's probably the only thing you can do on that small patch of land, isn't it? Yeah, well, and to be honest, it was quite a sizable outing, so I did. <laughs> Just just tip over to someone else's as well. Oh, which, which yeah. I believe in Scotland is an act of war. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so sorry, Lord Stephen Regal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you got have you got an official title over and above Lord? I mean, is it Lord of I don't know, Lord of Greek grass of you know, grassy patch it, of land? It's I can't remember. And the card that I carry in my wallet that says it is in my wallet, which is not on my person at this moment in time. But worry not, listener. I will report back next week and insist that the host introduce me as such. Oh, he's dropping teasers all over the place this week. Yeah. Oh, what? That's fucking gratitude for you. You buy someone a piece of land, make them a lord. They don't even know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's in Scotland. <laughs> Absolutely, come. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's move on to the next match before this descends into just insults back and forth. Um, it, no, you never... forgot, <laughs> <laughs> it is the Beverly Brothers taking on the Bushwhackers in a match that lasts just under 15 minutes and which oh. the Beverly Brothers end up winning. The Beverly Brothers are accompanied by the genius who recites a lovely poem beforehand. And the Bushwhackers are uh, accompanied by Jameson, who is uh, only around for a couple of months. And I think basically just to counter uh, the presence of the genius. Um, old man, what do you think of this one? Oh, um, to be honest, I'm, I'm going to, take it to pieces but 
as a part of the show, it was brilliant because the crowd are absolutely loving it. I mean, the bushwhackers are repulsive, like absolutely repulsive. They're licking children, which yes. I'd completely forgotten about. They're licking children yeah. coming down to the ring, which is horrible. Jameson is eating his tie, which is a bit strange and just a bit, it's just a bit uncomfortable, to be honest. Like looking back, admittedly, this is 28 years ago, so it's a very different time. But obviously, the, uh, the insinuation is, is that he's, he's, He's a bit simple, I think, is probably how they would have said it then. Um, yeah, is that the first five minutes of the match, it feels like basically the wrestlers posing. Yeah. And the, the bushwhackers doing their little arm thing to get the crowd going. Crowd never get bored of it. Just absolutely just love it. And then they just roll around for a little bit and then it finishes. But everyone has a great time. Everyone has a great time. Tom, Tom, what did you think of it? The bushwhackers are, are rubbish. Now you might correct, you might know more about this than I, Tinky. But when they were in like the independent scenes and in New Zealand, where they were called like the sheep warriors or whatever they're sheep called, herders. the sheep herders, sheep, yeah, them. Um, when they were the, <laughs> when they were the, yeah, the sheep herders, um, they were like, and you can tell by like the the blade marks on their foreheads. It's the old man's club. Um, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's collapsed. He's, he's, he's yeah. doubled over. <laughs> it's just the thought of someone calling a tag team the Sheep Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure why, but it's just the image of two ultimate warriors running down dressed as sheep. Is that it's is just, that why they is that why they they did that action? You know, for the for the for the listeners, if you're listening, they're doing the arm <laughs> movements. Is that them? They're just shearing sheep. Massive loads of sheep just doing that constantly. In the room. Um, but they were like hardcore wrestlers, weren't they? They were like yeah. in bloodbaths. And right. then the, 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 we, like, Vince was like, I got an idea for them. We're going to turn them into simpletons and have them lick babies. This <laughs> <laughs> is so fucking weird. And like, I, I don't know, like as, as old man put it, the nail on the head perfectly, they're so over. And I can show you what a stupid arm gesture can do to get you over. But like, they are on fire as well. And don't get me wrong, I think the the Beverly brothers were very shit. They were only there for like a year, <laughs> weren't they? Yeah. Um, the, the, when, when the best thing about them is their tandem mullets and the genius, <laughs> let's not forget the man who brought the moonsault to the United States, as previously mentioned uh, in another episode. It's just weird. It's just, yeah. The thing that kind of like topped it all off it's like, uh, Tinky, you said, like, there's the shenanigans at the end with the bulldog and also Jameson shin kicks the uh, the genius after what feels like about three hours of winding up to punching. He then shin kicks him, but the match is won with a double axe handle. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> it's just, it's a, I like, we seem to have a theme of axe handles running through the shoes. Because is it off the bottom rope? Uh, it's off the second rope, I believe. Maybe we'll get the hat trick in the next episode and someone will do it off the top rope. Oh, fingers crossed. Can I say one more thing about this match? Of course you can. So the, I hope you notice this, Tinky. It's a return of the external occipital pituberus. <laughs> yes. Which is what Gruner wants He had around the external occipital pituberus. Like what? <laughs> yeah, but brilliantly, Bobby the Brain Heenan calls him out on it. He says, "Why didn't you just say back of the neck?" 
So I, I, I appreciate it for that reason. I'm not even convinced it is actually a part of the body. I'm pretty certain the monsoon occasionally just made things up. Um, yeah, the Bushwhackers, strange as it as they are, they were both kind of nearly 50 by the time this match happened. Um, yeah, they're both really 50 quite 50 and licking babies? I uh, know, it's pretty... That's a criminal it? offence. Um, they, they debuted in the mid-60s in New Zealand, so they are properly old. You know, they really have been around a long time. They've done all kinds of stuff, worked for the Puerto Rico promotion, which is where they had a lot of their bloodbath-type matches. Um and but you you can't I mean I look, I thought the match was pretty pretty rough if I'm honest but you can't argue as you say with the reaction they get from the crowd they were over um, they were an act that WWF could push out there fill some time with it's hard to argue with the the success of the gimmick even if even if when you watch it now back however many years later is a bit rough to to watch so it turns out the external octipital protuberance is uh, a part of the uh, bone at the bottom of your neck, at the bottom of your skull, connected to your neck. I I stand corrected. I apologise to Gorilla Monsoon. Are you going to apologise to his family? No. No, just to Monsoon. Just to Monsoon. Um, I I think that's enough. I think that's enough. Um, So, yeah, I I thought this match was a bit of a chore. Um, I seem to remember, actually, from the last time I watched it, thinking, oh, yeah, it it is a bit of a it's just difficult to get through um and it was i was feeling a bit sleepy and this was the one moment in the show where i was like oh, i could easily just close my eyes right now and just not finish this off not bad just a bit boring and quite long 15 minutes especially when you consider and i know piper was pulling double duty so it was difficult for him to have a longer match for the intercontinental championship but when the intercontinental title match is five minutes long and this lasts 15 for me there's a there's a balance there's a balance issue um right there okay so let's move on to the third tag team match of the night this time it's for the tag team championships legion of doom defending their titles against the natural disasters um this one lasts uh, about nine and a half minutes and uh, the natural disasters win by count out which means the lod retain their titles uh tom your thoughts on this one you know how we said on the first episode where you kind of forget how massive razor moon is because you'll quite often see him paired with diesel and stuff yeah, I quite often forget how massive Hulk is. Yeah. Um, and for someone of his size, who's that comfortable on the top rope, he gets up there several times during this match. It's really quite impressive. Um, Earthquake was twenty nine. <laughs> Take that in for a second. It's a bit of. A, I think I may have said this to you years, years ago. Thinking back when we were doing the, the squash. Looking back on it now, I don't think that Earthquake's in that bad shape. Really, <laughs> compared to what I used to think so. Do you know what I mean? It, it makes me think, do you know what? Fair play to him, especially considering the size of some of the other people around him at the time. But it's, it's again, it's, I, I feel a little bit about the Legion of Doom, the same way that I do about Piper as well. I think they okay. look cool, their gimmick's cool, their music's cool, I like the spikes, but I'm never interested in their matches. Mm. And, and I know, again, I think this comes back to their kind of Crockett stuff and you know the stuff they did in the territories where they were like a real novelty act and, and a gimmick and they dressed up like b- b- S&M sex workers of some kind <laughs> but um but I, I just I've never really got the Legion of Doom I think honest. it's I think you have got them I think you've hit upon what people liked about them which was their look 
and their size and the fact that they could do what they could do you know hawk jumping off the top rope and stuff those the the, the shoulder pads are iconic um the presentation is what is good about them and i think the reason people rate them is because they rate them on a different in a different way to the way people rate wrestlers now i think wrestler people tend to look at the wrestlers and go oh he's a good wrestler in the ring he's not a great wrestler ring and he can do a good promo uh, and i'm entertained by it whereas i think what the road warriors the legion of doom get their credit from is the fact that they were just super over and that's why people that's how you judged people in you know but before this era now of talking about wrestlers and the way they work in the ring and the way they cut their promos it's just not we, they just didn't get judged the same way as they do now and i think that's why people that's what it is about legion. you already know what it is about the legion of zoom it's just i think you probably don't value those things as much as perhaps people did in the past yeah also i think you just gotta look at animal's hair <laughs> his hair is very odd and they're like i think like you guys have both touched upon there i think they just look so different as well from other teams of the time obviously they you could compare them to demolition in terms of the face paint and stuff like that but yeah i i do know what tom means though they're kind of a bit boring aren't they i i enjoyed the match and i like the fact that this is the third tag team match and they all feel very different they all feel like they bring something different to the party uh earthquake is tremendous i mean the shift that those pants are putting in that he's wearing i mean they go up they must cover his belly button and i i know he was a sumo previously so he's used to having some stuff up on his belly button but god that'd be uncomfortable for me especially if i was rolling around on the floor and he also does a drop kick at one point does. which is very yeah which is very decent yeah yeah no yeah. i mean don't get me wrong i think you're both right about their in-ring ability i think they're a little bit one-dimensional i don't think they really off i mean call them one-dimensional then i then we both we all talk about the fact that it's really impressive hawk did this kind of thing off the top rope but but yeah they they basically are brawlers that engage in pretty much one-dimensional matches um but i just think i mean i think of the legion of doom even just their wwf time and think they look they are one of the iconic looks of that time when i didn't know much about wrestling i knew who the legion of doom were and i recognized legion of doom and that is because it's so iconic that that look the way they came out the 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 just the visual that they had was just really iconic and therefore i think it just made them popular almost because they look so good i think that's as simple as it is what kind of happened with the legion of doom so they they were in in wrath until I remember them in they, they were at SummerSlam night. That, that was their last they? show. It was their last, last show. Last show. Yeah. And then what happened? Did they go? Was that when they did they did Hawk get sacked and then he went to Japan and formed like another version of it or something like that? Was it there? Didn't, didn't something a bit odd happen where they kind of split up and they kept Animal for a bit or something like that? Yeah. So, so Animal a strange and, nomadic career after this. Kind of well, phase. Animal left. Animal left the WWF because he had an injury, and in fact, he left. He didn't wrestle for a while. Didn't I think may have been about three or four years um, that he didn't wrestle for. Um, and so Hawk then went to Japan and and teamed up with Kensuke Sasaki, um, and they were a tag team that with 
quite a lot of success over there again you know the japanese wrestlers uh, japanese fans really appreciated the legion of doom um and their and their kind of um their act and then they returned to wcw they were there for like a year and then they went to wwf again there for a couple of years and after that they were yeah they were done they were quite old by that point they were and their hawk had his, uh, his, his personal problems as well in terms of drink which the wwf uh, at one point tried to cash in on uh, in a storyline which was um lovely uh very, taste, very tasteful yeah well you know that that's what you come to expect as a wrestling fan ultimately um and uh and yeah and then don't animal kind of had various one-off deals and occasional shots with the wwe after that but yeah they were they were getting on by that point so um again legion of dooms in in truth their peak was before this they were they were the, a major act in crockett in the in the 80s so um you know if in truth actually if you look at this entire roster this is a roster of the biggest stars of the last decade that's what this is is made up of all the biggest stars of the last decade um and um and some some up-and-coming talent as well don't get me wrong but but you've got piper and you've got hogan and you've got the legion of doom and you've got rick flair you know you know you've got the big names of wrestling of the 1980s so that's what they were they were but you yeah, i agree with you on earthquake earthquakes are far underappreciated wrestling like, again similar to scott hall maybe one of the reasons under underappreciated because of who his tag team partner was because typhoon isn't isn't in the same class well, and also he was always kind of saddled with like weird gimmicks, is not he? Because he did that, then he was like the shark or whatever he was in WCW, and he was Tenta, wasn't he? No, that's his name. Um, it was he, he was in the ODTs, wasn't he? Golga, Golga, uh, yeah. So like he was never kind of saddled with a particular. Like this first run as Earthquake when he was feuding with Hogan was he was great. He was really good in that, but then it kind of never got taken. He kind of almost had like the Rusev run going into the Cena match, kind of bubble burst after that and then just a bit of a nothing mid carder and then a in a tag team with a guy with tug in his name so. <laughs> yeah who i had the fortune of meeting at a wrestling convention that me and tom went to wow with uh with friend of the podcast 40 and he is a wonderful human being mm. just such a lovely man fred Austin a... is his name i believe yeah he oh, is, yeah. Oh, it's Uncle Fred. Apparently, <laughs> Cody Rhodes said when he fell through his instructor master. Oh, no. <laughs> Poor Uncle Fred. Yeah, he's just a lovely guy. But he also, uh, at the end of the match, he takes some chair shots from Hawk. Yeah, which is unnecessary. But also, they must be the shortest, like, swing of a chair I've ever seen. I mean, it must be about six inches. He's like, Hawk's like swinging. And he's barely, he's just basically placing a chair onto poor old Uncle Fred. <laughs> and he's selling it like an absolute champ because yeah, that's what he is. You've got, you got, you got, you got to protect your colleagues with his working chair shots, brother. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, so before we get to, uh, before we have our first break anyway for today, um, there is an interview after the match where the Natural Disasters and Jimmy Hart are not particularly happy about the fact that they won the match. But by count out, which means they are not getting the titles. Um, Sean Mooney is interviewing them. Again, old man, I'm going to come to you because you were particularly um, interested in covering those interviews. So this interview, listeners, <laughs> go back and watch it. If you don't watch anything else of the show, it is incredible because Jimmy Hart comes in. Even for Jimmy Hart, he's high pitched. Can't understand a word he's saying. I genuinely can't understand a word he's saying. And then he shuts up, 
So I, right, Earthquake's going to have a chat. Can't understand a word he's saying <laughs> because he's shouting so loud. Poor Sean Mooney is within, well, he's within earshot of them. He, he must have had blood coming out of his ears by the end of this. It's unbelievable. Just the rage and the inability to understand what people are saying. It's just wonderful. Just a lot of nostalgia in this show for me. I love the, I, I always love the um, different sets for different interviewers. One doing the heel, one doing the baby face. I'll always, I'll always like that. You know what I mean? You're like, yep, this is where you are today. You're going to be dealing with them. There's, the thing is, well, about a lot of these interview segments, is the, the thing I hate, and I'm going to turn into, the, I'm going to turn into grumpy, grumpy old man for a second and yell at kids for being on my lawn <laughs> or something like that. But it is, I the worst thing about wrestling at the moment, and I will say WWF because I can't, WWE because I can't really compare anything else to it, is are the backstage interview segments. They are awful. There'll be it's always interviewer, usually someone who's really short, saying, "Oh, Randy Orton, uh, this thing happened earlier," and when say, "What are your thoughts on it?" They'll just stand there. There'll be a preset monologue, and then they will walk off, and then the interviewer just stands there looking at them wistfully, going, "Oh, like that." <laughs> they don't like you'll you'll never get Sean Mooney or Gorilla Monster or, 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 or fucking Mean Gene going, "Oh, I'm looking wistfully away as Ravishing Rick Rude and Bobby Heenan walk off." They'll turn <laughs> around and go back to the ringside. Do you know what I mean? And it makes it feel like an actual thing has just happened, rather than just some nonsense to fill time. Do you know what I mean? I, I just. The, the, these things, the, those interviews are my favourite, some of my favourite things about these old cards, is because it just adds so much character and the people who are interviewing themselves have got something about them as well, especially Mean Gene. I know yeah, you're not a big are. Mooney guy, are you, Tinky? You're not a big Sean Mooney guy, but... Well, yeah, I mean, like, I mean I, I'd be surprised if there are many people who are big Sean Mooney guys. I mean, he's... I he's am. Okay. <laughs> he's adequate, but he's not, like, he's not amazing. Um, but you know, like ultimately, I, I I think I'd have to agree with you. I don't think it's just the the deference that the interviewers show the wrestlers. It's also just the lack of the the backstage inter- interviews that are done. There are, you know, my view. If you again, you look at this show. We've been talking through it. Nearly every match has got either a pre-match or a post-match or both interviews for each one to just gauge the reaction of the people who've won or lost or the gauge the reaction of people going into the match to, to kind of demonstrate how much the match means to them, either in, in victory, defeat or in preparation. And so it just gives the matches a, just a little bit more reason why you would, in, in, in the audience, be invested in the match because you know that the person who's wrestling in it is and wants to win and why they want to win and, and what their character is about. So I think it's something that generally pro wrestling has gotten away from is just that concept of a match is about to happen and it doesn't necessarily have to have 15 moonsaults in it to make the crowd interested. If before the match, you give someone a, uh, an interview where they, where they actually kind of demonstrate why they want to win what what it means to them to win. And then afterwards you kind of follow that up with the winner or the loser talking about their reaction to that. And I think those things are just lost and it's, it's shown really well during this show, I think. And I'll tell you one thing, this just some of the Tom said has kind of blown my mind a little bit. It, I'd never tweaked that there's a face interviewer and a heel interviewer at this time. It never tweaked in my mind. So thank you, Tom. You're welcome. <laughs> and 
I do. I must say, I know you said not many people are Sean Mooney guys. I love Sean Mooney. I think he's great <laughs> because I think he's so different to Mean Gene. That's what I notice on this card is that he's they're both very smooth, but they're very different. I think they complement each other. I mean, if I just had Sean Mooney interviews for a whole pay per view, I'd probably be hating him as you are, Tinky. But <laughs> I think this is the other thing about these backstage personalities though as well is that we were talking about earlier on the the Mountie and Piper pre-match stuff we had three backstage guys and they all went from one to the other so the uh, Lord Alfred Hayes talked us through what had happened the the day before when when the Mountie had won the championship then he um cut he, he then sort of passed over the baton if you like to either Sean Mooney or or Mean Gene and then they passed it to the other one and all three of them in a row linked to one another um, as if kind of covering, you know, genuinely trying to tell a story between the three of them. Mm. Um, and I just thought, you know, again, something you just you just don't see uh, these days. Um, but we are being now terrible old men. So let's take a quick break and we'll be back in just a second. We just witnessed an incredible matchup involving the Legion of Doom and the natural disasters. Hawk and Animal retained the belts but uh, obviously earthquake and typhoon are not going to be pleased and they are going to demand a rematch i'm sure sometime soon now i'm hoping to get a word with the uh, challengers but uh, they are at this point here wait a minute jimmy hart coming in and uh, obviously they're not very pleased with we should be the World Wrestling Federation Tag Team Champions. I am going to call my lawyer. I'm going to get my attorney. I am fed up with this. I am fed up to hear with this. They should be the champions. I'm just going to ask you We're on the titles. I can't believe it. What happened? How come they were taken away? You have to. It must be a pinball. Millions of people see what happened there. We're the champions. We're the WWF Tag Team Champions. We beat them fair and square. They were cut out of the ring. We had our hands held high. We're the champions. Jack Tony, you're the RTs. We're not put up with this stuff. We kicked their butts. And look what happens. They pull it away from us. It ain't gonna happen no more. The referee awarded us the match. These guys are the champions. I'm calling our attorney. I'm getting a lawyer because we're not gonna let these guys get away with that. No way, baby. We're fed up. This is it, baby. This is it, Sorry, uh, that is the official word. If we get our hands on you again, we will be the champions. Hawk and Animal, still the reigning tag team champions right now. Let's go back out to ringside. Welcome back to the show then. Um, now, before we get cracking with all the Rumble buildup and the Rumble itself, um, I just want to nudge you in the direction of at uh, RWRPodUK, both on Instagram and on Twitter. You can follow us along to get uh, all the kind of notifications about our latest releases and uh, all kinds of different things that we're trying to um, push on there. Um, we'd love to have you with us. Um so we are at the point where we're talking about the Royal Rumble match itself, guys. And there are a number of interview segments that precede this match. First of all, Sean Mooney is backstage. Um, he gets kind of barged out of the way by the Barbarian before interviewing Sean Michaels, where as part of this, they show the barbershop window angle, which had taken place just a few days beforehand. Oh, Van, what is your thoughts on this? I genuinely think this is the best promo i've ever seen Shawn michaels cut he's yeah he's just really comfortable without being cocky and i quite like it i mean his mother is oh it's phenomenal 
<laughs> but you mentioned the bit that I was going to touch on the barber shop clip. Still, all these years later, it's incredible. It's incredible. I can remember seeing that on Superstars as a kid and just being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> He's just lobbed this guy through a bloody glass window. This Did you is use unbelievable. Those words? Did you use those yeah, words well, as a kid? Yeah, to be fair, I, I probably would have been like eight eight or nine at this time, so definitely. <laughs> and and to be honest, I was probably on my third can of tenants of the day by that point. So mm. but yeah, yeah, it was just uh it's just enjoyable. It's Sean Mooney, isn't it? It's Sean Mooney is incapable of giving a bad interview, so <laughs> I, I, I remember I remember it happening at the time as well. Um but I didn't actually see it happening at the time i i had the magazine the wwf magazine where it kind of covered that bit and that in itself was almost worse like more violent like because you can you know it just showed the kind of the, the you know the pictures of it and of it happening and i remember being being heartbroken because i had not long before that got a rockers t-shirt oh. and, a, and a rockers t-shirt which uh, i seem to remember throwing up over once on my way to Sandy Bay with my parents. Uh, oh. I threw up three times and the Rockers t-shirt was the last one that I had and that got chunder all over it. Beautiful. The, um, I, uh, we didn't, there's a Piper interview before the Sean Walker's one, isn't there? Where I think Piper claims to be 15 years old. <laughs> I, I, I don't have any notes on this at all, so I must have missed this, which is what? one of the reasons why I didn't bring it up. It's only, only in America. Can, can a 15-year-old kid become the Intercontinental Champion? <laughs> oh, yes, I do remember what? now. What? <laughs> and also, what struck me about this is that we've had... So he's won the Intercontinental belt, obviously pleased with himself, as you would be. There have been two matches since then, and he's still amped up like he, the match is just finished. And I was a bit like, you've had about half hour here, mate. Why are you still... And then I realised... He's probably been on the old blow, isn't he? Hey, hey, come that's... on, come on! He's just won the Intercontinental title. I mean, that's and his first ever championship. I mean, he's going to be high for days. He's been this. on the blow, and you know it. <laughs> I still, so I tell you what, man, I'm going to challenge you on this because I remember at that wrestling convention we went to, I held an Intercontinental Championship that some bloke had in the crowd in, in the queue for Bret Hart that I held, mm. and uh, I'm still buzzing from that now. So, so, so Tom, Tom held a replica Intercontinental Championship for probably about two or three minutes and he's still buzzing from it now and you're criticising Piper for still being happy after 30, 30 minutes of actually having earned the championship. That's because he's on the gag, but he does also... Uh, <laughs> like, not only does he say about being a 15-year-old kid, he also uh, gives a nice Martin Luther King I have a dream nod in his promo, because it was Martin Luther King Day the next day, which I was, oh, that's a lovely little touch, because it was it was quite obvious what he was getting at. Obviously, he, he, didn't, he, he didn't do an impression, because that would have been inappropriate. Yeah, going back to the barbershop window, I mean, it is a pretty iconic angle. Um, and it, yeah, you're absolutely right. It still packs a punch now. You see the, the you know, putting through the window itself. I mean that's that was that was shocking then, but I think it would still be shocking now if you that hadn't happened back then and you men had this promo now, uh, that angle now, sorry, you would be absolutely like it would be like really shocking, really impactful, 
um I, I guess a measure of how much they wanted to get behind Shawn michaels how much they saw in him and his talent um going forward um but yeah just a just an iconic another iconic, iconic moment from this kind of period of time where the fuck's beefcake and all this he just he's there <laughs> at the beginning as they raise their hand he's scarpers he doesn't he scarpers he don't want to get involved he's, he's like well oh, sorry Hulk hogan do you, do you need your asshole licked i'll be there <laughs> To be fair, I, I suppose it depends on how he approaches the arsehole. <laughs> I think I, th- I guess I, I will try and be the um, devil's advocate in terms of the storyline, the kayfabe side of it, is that Beefcake is given an interview segment on the on the <laughs> basis that he won't get involved, like he stays neutral during that those things happening. He gone backstage to get on the gag with Piper. And, you know. <laughs> I think I, think, should, I think I should say at this time that we have no evidence that anyone was on anything at any point during this, this show. You you are correct, but I think mean, we can make an educated guess. We can all make our own conclusions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we see fit. Um, also, if we say like, okay, you're not getting involved, but you know, it does kind of make him a bit of an accomplice. He provided the window. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's it's like the like one of the things that I've noticed in a lot of wrestling shows is uh, specifically I've noticed it in Mid South Wrestling, but that I've this kind of hints of it elsewhere is that in Mid South Wrestling they used to have a guest commentator a lot of the time uh, with whoever the play by play was, and what they would do is say often at the beginning of the show or at some point during the show that the person sat next to them wasn't allowed to get involved in anything that happened so if so often what would be is the baby face would be the, this guest commentator but of course there would then be um two heels that were beating up a baby face and the idea was that would give them an out for why they didn't save the other baby face it actually made a lot of sense because mm. otherwise why wouldn't they just go and save them um so i'm i'm taking that this is the same thing that beefcake simply by being given this kind of interview segment that he was given on a regular basis wasn't allowed to get involved in any kind of physical altercations i think basically he knew the way that marty Janetti's career was going to go after this and he <laughs> thought i ain't being associated with him but imagine yeah. where his career could have gone if he had beefcake in his corner <laughs> well to be fair yeah because if he decided with old ed leslie then he might have got a bit of Hogan's ass and and he could be well he could be doing anything now couldn't he or nothing it's worth he saying could have, he could have, he could have let Hogan and check his wife that way I know it wouldn't be big that was some other guy wasn't it but <laughs> um what I was going to say though about this other the other thing about the barbershop window is that Marty Jannetty actually this was his last appearance in WWE until late 92 so he was selling he was due to sell this injury for the next month or so and Michaels and Jannetty were due to have a match at WrestleMania 8 which didn't happen because Jannetty was fired I can't exactly remember why he'd actually I think been arrested uh, for something and they needed to uh, and they suspended him um he then um but also beefcake wasn't wrestling at this time because he was still recovering from the windsurfing accident that they would the wwf would then later try and draw upon for his wrestlemania 9 match um that he and hogan had with uh, the uh, money inc but um this was about six months after the accident as you can see his face was okay at this point so um they did try and draw that out a little bit longer than than necessary i'll tell you what i've just thought so so I'd forgotten it. Sorry, we're jumping to WrestleMania 9 here, but because obviously they use that angle where Old Ed gets his face smashed in, which 
having read the details of it, sounds absolutely awful. Hogan just couldn't let him have it, could he? So Hogan crashed. Hogan apparently crashed his car the night before WrestleMania nine and got a black eye just to be like, <laughs> "That's not an injury. That's an injury." Look at me. It- in fairness to Hogan, I think the only reason Beefcake was even used in that match was because of Hogan. Um, because well, you say that Ed Leslie went over on his own back. Well, he over might have been on his own back. He might have. <laughs> he might have been over, um, but I don't think he was coming back to WWF at any anytime soon without Hogan basically. I can't WWE trying to bring Hogan back in. <laughs> anyway, we're going way off topic here. Let's let's get back to 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 the actual show recovering, because um we then have another Coliseum home video exclusive with Ric Flair, um and he reveals during this interview that he has drawn number three, which obviously people watching the broadcast itself won't have seen, but we are watching it beforehand, which kind of spoils the surprise if anyone was going to be surprised that he comes out at number three. Uh, old man. I mean, one, Flair's hair is untouchable at this point in his career. And, uh, yeah, the thing that struck me about this is the fact that he announces his number. And I can remember watching this on Coliseum Video. And I was <laughs> glad of the exclusives. It was nice to see a human side of Hulk. But it wasn't good to hear this from Flair. <laughs> Very disappointed. Because angry. also, obviously, when we get to the Rumble... Uh, mean Gene, not Mean Gene, bloody hell, but, um, but uh, Bobby Heenan sells it like his mother's been thrown in front of a car. And <laughs> the selling didn't work for me as a as a young child because I knew he was coming out. It was disappointing. And it's, it's very it's un- disappointing. It's hard to believe that Mean Gene wouldn't have relayed that information back to Bobby the Brain, having yeah. found out in this exclusive interview with Ric Flair. There's a, a great kind of trend running through the pay-per-view up to this point as well, where um, it's Bobby Heenan keeping wanting to go backstage so he could speak to Ric Flair to find <laughs> out what the number is, and him just yeah. winding up Gorilla Monsoon. That's really good, that is. And then we have um, the the sort of straight-to-camera series of promos by a number of people in the Rumble. I've got that Savage, Sid... Reaper Man, the British Bulldog, Roberts, Jake Roberts, obviously, Mr. Perfect and Ric Flair, Undertaker and Paul Bearer and Hulk Hogan are um, uh, give their views ahead of the Rumble match. One of those classic quick fire straight to video, straight to sorry, camera promos. Uh, old man, your thoughts on this one? Well, I enjoyed pretty much all of them. The Repo Man is so into his character. It's hard to hate him, even though he's absolutely awful. Bulldog is the absolute shit. Like, <laughs> awful. His promo is horrific. Yeah. I won the Battle Royal at the Albert Hall in Master City of London. <laughs> and then, one, he's from Leeds. <laughs> yes. Like, well, he's from Wigan. Wigan. In real life, he's from Wigan. Yeah, I know. From it's Wigan? He's all over the place. That was a really good impression of British Bulldog. And this, is, this was exactly the point that... Um, me and my wife were discussing because he does say my my impression of (laughs) yes yeah and also the fact that he does say um i won the royal rumble in the battle the royal um, god i can't even speak the battle royal the royal albert hall um in my hometown of london and then i'm like well that's not true he's not from london and then of course he's one of the two men that come out first in the rumble and 
they announce where he's from and they say Leeds, England in oh. the thing. And I'm like, well, he's not from there either. He's from Wigan. This is ridiculous. Later on in his career, don't they actually say he's from Manchester? Yes, they do. Yes. Which at least at least is close to Wigan. Yeah, at least that's closer to, to where he's actually from. So I'm I'm not unhappy about that. I don't really know why they say he's from Leeds though, because I mean, why? Why why, why would you make that up? Well, like, because. The, uh, Leeds is a hotbed of wrestling. What other interviews? What were the other people we said? Because that one really stuck out with me. Jake Roberts' one's pretty good, as you'd expect. His promo is pretty pretty decent. Because he says something at the beginning which is quite profound, but I can't remember what it was. But it was good. Anyway, more of that. It's searing insight later on. <laughs> um, I can't remember what it was, but it was good. <laughs> there's the Mr. Perfect in Flair, and Flair does a magnificent job of putting over the rest of the roster. Obviously, mm. with with a cynical eye and an experienced eye watcher wrestling, you know immediately at that point he's going to win the Rumble. And you kind of know like from what Heenan's saying. And then uh, Paul Bearer cuts the promo and The Undertaker does his little bit. It talks about 29 hearses. Oh, and it's like uh, 29 hearses lined up. And I was like, you imagine if there actually were outside the arena 29 hearses just waiting and then the undertaker don't win and there's like i don't know how many people the undertaker gets out say three or four three or four drive off with some dead bodies in there the other one's like sorry do, have i got any words tonight or what do i need to let's go in i've hired the hearse now are you gonna recompense me and paul bearer is like Whoa! um <laughs> There was also, I did really uh, quite like um, Sid Justice's promo. He's so close and intense. He his teeth are clenched the entire time. Yeah, the yeah. And it just, it's a different flavour to all of the other shows. And at this stage, was he a babyface at this point? That is a good question. I'm not entirely certain what his disposition is at this precise moment. Obviously, for WrestleMania 8, he's a heel. But I don't know if this is his heel turn, if you like, is the fact that he's now opposing Hogan. So I'm not entirely certain. One thing I do know is The Undertaker is still a heel at this point. Um, he's over there, isn't he? And actually, when he comes out, you can hear some some cheers. But we'll get to that in just in just a moment. So let's move on to the match itself. Now, obviously, they don't cover this on the show, which I think is a bit... That's a bit annoying. I, I'd like them to just recap why this match is for the WWF Championship. Um, yeah. Because it is for the WWF Championship. It's not just the Rumble. And that's as a consequence of a couple of matches that Hulk Hogan and The Undertaker had had at the end of uh, 1991. The first one at the Survivor Series where um, Hogan's a champion and loses the belt to The Undertaker when Ric Flair comes out, puts a chair in the ring and Undertaker tombstones Hogan on it and pins him. Then the second uh, the second match is at Tuesday in Texas. And uh, at that one, Hogan wins back the title. But again, in controversial circumstances, Hogan is in the in the in the ascendancy in the match. And Paul Bearer tries to get involved. Hogan takes the urn off of Paul Bearer, reaches in, grabs some ashes and throws them into the eyes of the undertaker, just as the as the referee um is kind of as is being distracted and then um hogan then pins the undertaker with a roll-up to win the championship back as a consequence of all that jack tunney stripped hogan of the belt declared it vacant and then put the title up for grabs in this rumble match and therefore the belt is on the line jack tunney opens up the match 
um, explaining that the winner will be the champion. <laughs> and uh, from the noise in the background being made by Tom, uh, we can tell that Jack Tunney isn't exactly his um, flavour of the month, shall we say. Do you want to speak I, on I that, t- Tom? I'll tell you what, right. Jack Tunney is so boring and has all the charisma of a wet sock. He is awful. He, come, he comes down. And I tell you what, so he's got, and to, 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 he might be actually brilliant and I'm just not intelligent enough to realise it because he's got some fucking heat from the crowd. The crowd are like booing the shit out of him when he comes down. They're like, yeah. and this, is, this is before like the age of the smart fan as well. So it's not like they're like, we're booing him because he's rubbish at his job. Do you know what I mean? Like, or maybe because maybe it's a kayfabe rubbish at his job. By the way, he's got some real heat on him and I've got a feeling it's, it's X-Pac heat rather than character heat no i don't think that's true i think it is character heat because he um first of all you hear bobby heenan obviously criticized honey a lot during the commentary but also there's one of the um i think it's hogan in his promo mentions that jack tunney is rubbish he's no good he's you know he's, he's made bad mm. calls and the reason he's saying it is because obviously he was the one who was stripped of the belt um following tuesday in texas so there is a suggestion that he's actually annoying to everybody because he's the one laying down the law and saying the belt has to be on the line can i go back to the hogan pro actually which we didn't really cover again starts going on about cups of tea yeah he says it he again does. a couple of times in that promo. Sorry about cups of tea. So yeah. He's got it on his mind. Yeah. If there is a bigger heel on this in this pay per view than Hulk Hogan, I haven't seen one. <laughs> well, he, he does have he does have his, his wrestling style, shall we say? He does like to he does like a poke in the face, doesn't he, old Hogan? Yeah, and we'll, we'll chat about what happens at the end. But it's also to to be moaning about the uh, the authority figure taking your belt away. It's quite a heelish thing as well, isn't it? I guess you're right, but I think the the idea was that that nobody liked Tunney because he was the necessary evil of there being someone playing like the the president role. I think the idea is that you are supposed to dislike Tunney, but not because he's a bad person but because he's he's the referee like in a football match everyone hates the ref no matter what side you're on this is what Tunney's role is supposed to be he's kind of like the bad guy without doing anything bad well what's this bear in mind what i've just said about jack's Tunney and slitting him i'd still take him over myriad of different authority figures that they've had in the last 15 years at wwe well i think that's the point isn't it is that Tunney does the stuff that's necessary for the storyline and it makes sense when he does it. Um, and you can put heat on him if you want, because he's not going to be there week to week in the stories. He's just there to almost officiate when there's a big decision needs to be made. So that's why I like Tony. Um, but yeah, he's, he's definitely not the most charismatic of gentlemen. Let's get into the match, shall we? Because we've spoken enough about the, <laughs> the build up to it. The first two in the match are the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, and the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Um, DiBiase is clotheslined out of the ring by Davy Boy Smith shortly into the match. Any any thoughts on DiBiase's early um, early well, he, exit? DiBiase is intent on getting all of his moves in. <laughs> I, I think he's in there for like a minute and a half. He wants to get everything, every ounce of DiBiase wants to leave in that ring, hopefully just in a like me- metaphorical sense. And also the Bulldog sequined Union Jack that he comes down to, uh, well he comes down wearing his, it's a good look, it's a good look. 
We've now seen Ted DiBiase perform a wrestling role, a commentary role, and a management role in three different shows. Yeah. Um, I I think it's a criminal waste. Now, admittedly, he's getting near the end of his career now, isn't he? Is he he with with IRS at this point? Yeah. Are they money? He's getting near the end of his career, and I understand why he might not want to be in a Rumble match for a really long time. But one minute and 18 seconds is an absolute fucking waste of Ted DiBiase, especially when... I think if you think back, and it's only four, it's four years earlier, three years earlier, but the Royal Rumble 89 is he puts on an absolute clinic in that rumble um, and ends up in the final two men with Big John Stud. And it's an absolute sham that he's out that early, in my opinion. The other thing I wanted to quickly say, he comes down with Sensational Sherry and there is the creepiest, perviest man in the front row with an airbrushed <laughs> Sensational Sherry T-shirt on with a sign that says Sensational Sherry, worth her weight in gold. And the look that he is giving straight down the camera is unsettling. And I'm looking at it now. I'll post it on our IG when this episode goes out. But it is horrible. I didn't notice that, man. I will look forward to that at RWR Pod mm. UK um, to see the picture. Um, yeah, uh, so Ted DiBiase going out. Yeah, I wanted to make uh, a point about that. So I, I know what you mean. Like, I get it. It's Ted DiBiase. He's a he's a very talented guy. We we want to see as much of him as we can. But I think this works really well. I think it's a really hot way to get the the, the match off and up and running. David Boy, Boy Smith, no matter what you want to say about his promo, is incredibly over with the crowd, incredibly popular. This isn't even the UK, and he's like really over with the with the crowd. Um, him and Teddy Biossi have a really good two, you know, less than two minute, I guess, um, exchange of uh, of. of of action and it sets up brilliantly for flair to be number three because he goes out everyone's still excited teddy biossi's walking out as flair walks in you see them pass each other um i just think it works really well i think it's a really as much as you'd like to see more of dbossi i think if you're gonna have him go out after less than two minutes this is the way to do it with like just a really getting the crowd and the excitement off to a really good start and i think it works really well one thing that is really impressive as well, by the time Ric Flair comes down, is um, the Bulldog's hair is gone. I know we, we fixate on hair quite a lot on the show. We do. Um, but his, his hair at this point, because he's got the braids, but he's kind of got this like curly mop on top. And by this point, it's almost like it, the top of it looks like Jules's hair from Pulp Fiction. And then he's got <laughs> the braids on the back and sides. Yeah. And it, he looks an absolute mess. I loved it my highlight of the match yeah well <laughs> your highlight of the match <laughs> <laughs> when uh when like you said about when flair comes down my god the heat on him is unbelievable oh it's nuclear the heat i think if if he wasn't rick flair he would have exploded or possibly burst into tears because it's hot like the crowd are gagging and beat him up and it's phenomenal so Flair comes that. out and he had been uh, for the last sort of six months or so claiming to be the real world champion, having left uh, WCW as their equivalent of the world champion and actually taking the belt with him to the WWF when he first turned up. Uh, after a couple of months, um, WCW managed to get the belt back because they threatened a lawsuit. And so as a consequence, Ric Flair carried around one of the WWF tag team championships and they concocted the storyline of blurting it out of the screen every time he came onto screen to obviously not to expose the fact that it wasn't another world championship belt must have looked very odd if you're in the crowd yeah and they didn't explain that 
yeah ridiculous i mean you'd have thought as well they could have just fashioned a not very expensive replica of a of the same title or or just a different looking belt mm. it wouldn't have been very difficult for them to do but no just gave him one of the tag team belts that's the kind of laziness that you uh you gotta love in pro wrestling sometimes he could have he could have given him the million dollar belt that had been retired by that point hadn't it you could have given him anything anything uh, other than just one of the tag belts it made me think though it got me thinking about the kind of if you watch any of um any documentaries in the wwe network of which there are many about the monday night wars and stuff and how sanctimonious they get about um medusa with the women's championship belt which admittedly is pretty poor form to put it in the bin mm. they started it yeah they did but i guess look, this is this is the privilege you get from winning i guess is you get yeah. to tell the story however you want to tell it and that's what they do so rick flair comes out at number three he gets press slammed by david boy smith over the next couple of minutes before out comes number four jerry sags of the nasty boys um and he's eliminated pretty quickly by a david so, boy smith dropkick anything on jerry that, sags next thank yeah thank god he got out they are i realize the nasty boys are the second most unpleasing tag team to look at on the show. You've got the Bushwhackers in first place. And then purely because of their outfits, the natural disasters get bronze, I think. Yeah. Um, and then the Beverly, the, the Beverly brothers get fourth place just, but they get bonus points for the mullets. The thing that I did notice as well, I didn't know about you boys, but the amount of times that Ric Flair spends up in the air and landing on his back in this rumble yeah. is ridiculous. He gets press slammed about four or five times. He gets mm. back body dropped a bunch. He is constantly just flying around in the ring. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I was thinking to myself, like, fuck me, that. Oh, I mean, we know that, like, we know that wrestling, you know, is obviously predetermined, but it, it takes its toll. But I was watching that thinking, Jesus Christ, I bet you could barely walk out the next day after that. Yeah. Well, also, he, he infamously takes all of his backdrops on his shoulder as well. Doesn't yeah. Doesn't take them properly on his back. So he's, uh, it must have been, yeah, it must have been agony. And um, yeah, I, th- I think, though, that's a bit of a feature of Flair's work um, overall, actually, is he does tend to take a lot of backdrops. It just, mm. just seems to be something he does. Um Next up, number five is Haku, who we are told earlier in the show um, is a replacement for the other nasty boy, Brian Nobbs, who's got an injury. Um, he comes out, no. pal dri- drives David Boy Smith, which is uh, it's, really a be- nice. it's a beautiful pal driver as well. Indeed it is. And then David Boy Smith throws Haku out <laughs> not long afterwards. <laughs> um, it's a shame because I'm a big fan of Haku. Um, yeah. Disappointed to see him not last quite as lo- any longer than that. Yeah, he's... He's just a good worker, isn't he? And he's got a he's got a killer mullet as well at this <laughs> point. It's um, a great mullet. It's just oh, ninety ninety two. What a year! It's what just, a it's, year! It's, it's, a, it's no frills, which is funny because it's quite curly. But it's <laughs> it's a no frills. It's a no frills mullet. It's 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 not long. It's, it's not pretentious. It's just there doing yeah. a bloody good job yeah. for him. It's not what it would become later in his career when it's absolutely oh, no. gigantic. <laughs> no. Uh, number six into the Royal Rumble is the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels. Um, the main uh, the main action of after he uh, enters the match is that David Boy Smith manages to crotch him on the top rope and uh, do their a, a spot that the two of them actually do an awful lot um, when they face each other. It's something you very often see. In fact, I think he probably did it during the Rumble '95 that we covered a couple of weeks ago, where Shawn Michaels kind of is led on the top of the ropes. David Boy Smith kicks him, and he kind of just. You know, comes down yeah. on the top rope. 
do is this the first this is the first pay-per-view appearance of Shawn Michaels in this guise as a heel yeah yeah um, and is this the first televised kind of appearance of him this is the first match that he was involved in in this guise as well yeah you would have been because the, the the barbershop window had happened like a week before a week so, yeah. before yeah so the, there is again very good heat on him as he comes yeah. into the ring as well um and it must have been what very shortly after that that sherry became his manager yeah not long after so then number seven is el matador tito santana which despite how much they try to stick to they keep referring to him as Santana rather than El Matador because he's been in the company now for about 15 years by this point he'd won the Intercontinental Championship a couple of times uh when the Intercontinental Championship as that was genuinely important you can't you can't change someone's name who's been doing it for that long I'm pretty sure that Bobby Heenan calls him guacamole as well on the way down which that you think you think mm, you know a little bit yeah. now you know I mean he is to be fair he's wearing green uh but it's still a little bit like uh, I'm not sure about that now. Yeah. You, you've just got a lovely pool of talent in the ring. You've got Flair, Bulldog, Michaels in Santana. Sorry, Al Matador or Guacamole. And then, from memory, the Barbarian comes down next. Um, yes, you're right. Barbarian comes out next um, after a low blow by Flair on David Boy Smith and Santana flying forearm on Flair uh, after that. Barbarian comes to the ring. Uh, I've got no notes after this. And, and for me, this is the period of the match where there's a lull for the next mm. five, six entrants. You know, we've we've had the really quick start with Dave Boy Smith and Ted DiBiossi and DiBiossi's elimination. Then we got Flair in the ring. So everyone's really excited. Shawn Michaels is not long after that. Then we get Tito. And then things start to calm down for the next few entrants, which starts with number eight, the Barbarian, which, old man, you've already made your feelings perfectly clear on. Um, yeah. Tom, you obviously Scum. prefer this version of the Barbarian to the one we saw a couple of uh, couple of episodes ago. Yeah, but I still prefer the Powers of Pain Barbarian. I see. So. Well, Maybe one day we'll get to see those, your, your preferred version <laughs> yeah. of the Barbarian. In fact, we've seen the Barbarian also at the sold-out pay-per-view because he came out into the crowd with Haku. Um, yeah, um, but I'll be honest, I've got nothing on the Barbarian. Fair enough. Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Number nine is Kerry Von Erich, which um, I think, uh, again, I don't think it gets... I think it's part of this general lull, but there is a quite interesting exchange that he has with Ric Flair, which is probably lost on the majority of the WWF audience at the time, because the two of them had in the early eighties been having quite, had some pretty massive matches over the NWA world championship. But by this point, obviously Kerry Von Erich is um, very, very late into his time on this earth. Any thoughts on Kerry Von Erich? I, I think that I'd see there, there is a little bit of that. I do feel like it's a bit of a missed opportunity to be perfectly honest, because they go in, they have a very brief exchange, but it is a very, he has a very brief exchange with Flair and it is a very brief exchange. It should have gone on for a little bit more longer and a bit more intense. I, I personally believe because it would have been a nod to those matches, you know, back in, back in Texas. So I, in terms of his overall career, I don't have much on the Texas tornado to be perfectly honest, but I do feel like that moment was a little bit, it could have been built up a little bit more and played out a little bit differently. I just think the reason it wasn't is because it would have been lost on the crowd. I just don't think mm. this crowd were, were anywhere near aware of the, the history that they shared with one another. And I think that's the main reason it was just completely underplayed. But they still did it, which was quite nice, mm. I think. Well, and, and then after that, the big gun comes down, big repo man, who, from memory, 
hangs around outside the ring and Bobby Heenan gets quite angry about it. He's like, he needs to get in there. He needs to get in there. And Monsoon's like, no, he's being clever. He's being clever. I think it's the other way around. I think it's the other way around. Yeah, I think Monsoon's getting angry and saying he should get in there. And Bobby Heenan's saying, no, he's doing the smart thing, which... I think he's right. He was doing the smart yeah. thing. Does Superman's leotard have tire tracks across it? As if he could run indeed. There? Yeah, <laughs> it's a very strange <laughs> sartorial choice. Uh, I th- what's even odder is that, like, getting run over isn't a thing that repo men do. <laughs> no, because they repossess things. They don't get run over, and he's got like his jacket's got the outer of tires on it. I don't quite know what they were thinking. They were like, what do repo men do? Are they repossess things? Cars? Tires? (laughs) Yes. They don't don't generally wear masks either. No. (laughs) No, no, which I completely forgot about. I think that's just a way to cover up the fact that he's smashed from demolition and they don't want people to... He will make up a smash. Yeah, but I guess that was just another another way of ensuring that no one recognised that he was smashed from demolition. Well, obviously it's not worked. <laughs> um, up next, we've got uh, Greg the Hammer Valentine. Um, oh, so I, this is such a nothing entrant into this rumble. I, I, like Greg Valentine at this stage in his career, no one cares about There's Nobody gives a shit about him coming into the ring. He's already gone past. He's got out of his rhythm and blues gimmick now, which was, which was amazing. <laughs> Um, and he didn't even get into like a slugfest. Like, can you remember the match that he has with Ronnie Garvin at one of the early manias? Is it or is it a rumble? I can't remember. Well, rumble. But he just slapped the shit out of each other. Yeah. He hadn't even got like that level of intensity about it. It's actually a bit sad watching Greg Valentine come down and be in this rumble. He is a little bit. Yeah, he has a little bit of a exchange with Ric Flair again. I think. I mean, that's the thing. Ric Flair has a little bit of a thing with everybody here. He has a go at everyone. Um, Valentine, though, yeah. I mean, like, he was well past his best. He was. 22 years into his career by this point um and uh, had been a, an amazing wrestler in his past um but by this point yeah was definitely coming to the end of of, of a long career um of, of which he'd wrestled a lot of pretty high impact long matches similarly to flair i suppose um but yeah um part of the lull part of the lull in the middle, middle part of the match ultimately um, and can i can i i've got to be perfect on this so between nine which is the texas tornado and 15 who i won't spoiler i didn't pay much attention because i was trying to find on google images a picture of disco inferno um <laughs> why so why? oh you'll find out oh okay good um yeah so I, i'll be honest i haven't really got much until that point okay well number 12 is nikolai volkov um who when he comes out is booed which is actually a shame because he was a babyface at this point in his career as uh, is testament to the fact that on his tights you'll see a little motif of the russian flag um kind of crossed over with the american flag because he was now obviously russia had come out of the cold war they were now a capitalist mm-hmm. society and nikolai volkov as the story went had seen the error of his ways and had gone capitalist along with his country and so um he was actually portraying a baby face at the time but he was he was booed which is a real real shame and also i should mention that volkov we learned earlier in the um night was actually a replacement for marty ginetti which again is a really nice little touch i think the fact that they even were suggesting that they planned originally for ginetti to be in this match but because of the barbershop window he couldn't be so i thought that was really cool but yeah there's not a lot else to say about volkov is there 
Well, the one thing I do enjoy, and I didn't realise that he was meant to be a face at this time, because he does, he gets booed quite quite enthusiastically by the crowd, but he's still high-fiving people. What a lovely man. What a lovely man. <laughs> nice lad. Good lad. Well, yeah. This is another guy who'd been around for absolutely forever. You know, like by this point, he'd been wrestling for years and years and years. His debut was in 1967. Um, you know, he he was properly late in his career. He's probably just happy to be picking up a paycheck, quite frankly. After Volkov came out, we had um, Greg Valentine put the figure four on Ric Flair, which was a nice little touch. Um, and Volkov himself was eliminated by the Repo Man. Um, and number thirteen, Repo Man. <laughs> number thirteen was a Big Boss Man who came in and uh, after his elim- uh, after his, not after his elimination, after his entrance, we had a flurry of eliminations. So Valentine eliminated was eliminated by the Repo Man. So two in a row for for the Repo Man, but he was then eliminated himself by the Big Boss Man. Uh, oh. Flair, the, Flair then eliminated Davy Boy Smith <laughs> and uh, also the Texas Tornado. Um, so we were so Bossman had come out and and already the 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 numbers were starting to dwell uh, to to drop. And I think that was a good thing because I think part of the reason this was a lull match was there just probably it's just too many people in there. It was getting crowded um, and becoming kind of not really note not not a lot of notable things were happening as a consequence. Yeah, definitely, and it leads lovely into the moment of the match as well, which which I think we'll get to in a minute. Because I think at this point, Hercules pops down for a little bit. He does indeed. So out comes number 14, Hercules. An absolutely horrific man to look at. I don't know <laughs> what, he's not ugly. So if he's listening, it's not sure ugly. I think it's just, he's got, this horrible moustache. He, he looks like an adult entertainment star. That's what he looks like. And the thought of him doing adult entertainment was enough to turn me off. Well, that's, no, that's no good for someone who's in that, that particular industry, is it? No, uh, precisely. I, I also hate to say this old man, but um, I, th- I don't think he is listening because he passed away in 2004. <laughs> oh, well, if his family's listening, if if... If Hercules Jr. is listening, then please accept my apologies. I've got to be honest, like I, I've done a very quick tally of this. I think it's about one in two chance that if you're in this Royal Rumble, you're dead by now. Um, yeah, I was just thinking that myself. So, yeah, I, I would. It's not exactly it's a, it's a, a maudlin fault. But um, unfortunately, that is, again, a legacy that pro wrestling um, yeah. uh, unfortunately has. Um so after Hercules comes out, we get Michaels and Santana eliminate one another as they're fighting with, with each other. Is that with WrestleMania 8 in mind, do you think? Yes, I expect it was. I expect it was. Like, Although, actually, no, because Michaels was supposed to face Janetti at WrestleMania 8 at that time. That was before Janetti obviously had been sacked. So um, I don't know. Maybe they just maybe they just got lucky there. Then we had uh, Hercules um, throw out Barbarian. Flair then dunked out Hercules and we were down to just the big boss man and Ric Flair, which ended when boss man missed Flair and was kind of dumped out by him uh, in the process. So then is this the is this the big moment you've been waiting for? old man, it's brilliant because Flair sells that. And he probably is at this point, to be honest, he, he even a man who goes 60 minutes every night, like he sells how exhausted he is. And then here he is, my boy, 
my favourite ever <laughs> is Piper. <laughs> it is. Uh, just before Piper comes out uh, and Flair's um, taking the boss man out, Bobby Heenan declares Flair the winner and world champion because he's the only one left in the ring. <laughs> Which is genius. Like the, the noise of the crowd and the way that Flair sells it and to his credit, the way that Piper sells it. Oh, it's unbelievable. I could, when I was watching it, I could remember watching it as a kid. Oh, it was wonderful. And again, this is a this is another again drawing on history. I mean, first of all, Flair and Piper had actually been in a feud in the latter half of 1991. Um, but also, um, this parks back again to the the mid Atlantic days in the early 80s. Piper and Flair were two of the biggest stars and would regularly face each other for the NWA World Championship. And they fought out of the ring, so they kind of went under the bottom rope and fought outside of the ring. Uh, and then Sleeper, uh, hold by Roddy Piper, and uh, he then um, delivered an airplane spin to him as well, <laughs> which which kind of meant that Piper was on top to allow number 16 to come out, Jake the Snake Roberts. So we're really now starting to see some of the heavyweights of the show. Um, Tom, where where are you at? Are you back into it now by this point? Yeah, so um, when when Piper came down was when I, I was satisfied that I found the correct picture of Disco Inferno, <laughs> and um, he put yeah oh, everything you guys said there is is correct. It's amazing. It's at this point as well, well as well, where Bob Eden starts going into full meltdown mode, keeps yelling at people off camera to get him glasses of water <laughs> and stuff like that, and he's like, "Yo, idiot, get me get me a water," and it's just it's brilliant. And I, I'll be honest, when it happens, I think you've got, um, uh, yeah, Piper is kind of, yeah, very much in the ascendancy with Ric Flair. And then when Jake Roberts come, came down, I couldn't believe my luck. Honestly, I was like, this is amazing. Now. This, is what, this is what I tuned in for as we were watching this. And then it's just like the little things that make that, that moment so great. Just like, you, like, Roberts gets in and you see the kind of, the way that character worked and the, the kind of thought process and stuff that you put. And he gets in there, just sits down, sits in the corner. So like, now you guys carry on. Yeah. And it's just those little kind of tweaks. And also, is this the first Royal Rumble where people start fighting outside the ring? Because I don't remember it really happening before this. Um, and which obviously be. became like a thing, a big thing later on. You think about it, is it the 99 Rumble with Vince and Austin when they go out? And it's uh, this is the first in my, you know, they, they decide to start taking some of the action outside of the confines of the ring. Yeah, I think you might be right. I'm it's not quite entirely certain. Well, actually, no. I mean, in the 89 Rumble, there's a bit of that even um, with Hogan and Bossman and and the one man gang, not one man gang, Akeem at the time. Um, So there is a bit of outside of the ring stuff, even in the 89 one. Um, Isn't that after they're out? I don't think so. I think there is a bit before, but I may be wrong. I can't remember precisely. Um, Yeah, so Robert sits sits in the corner and tells them to carry on fighting. They do, and then Roberts attacks Piper as soon as his back's turned. Um, Flair puts a figure four on, Rob, on Jake Roberts during this period. I've also written, uh, as you just mentioned, Tom, uh, Heenan is absolutely excellent in this match. Um, he's just going mad. I think the thing that really sticks out, though, is just 
comparison with the Royal Rumble 1995 and the star power that's involved in this one at this point you know we we were talking about the lack of star power in the Rumble 95 uh, at this point in this match we've already had um, Flair and Piper two of the biggest stars of the last decade we've had Ted DiBiase Dave Smith, the big boss man we've now got Jake the Snake Roberts in the match we've got former Intercontinental Championship champions Tito Santana Kerry Von Eric Greg DeHammer Valentine um, it's just got it's just full. It's just full of, of of name talent and name wrestlers who've meant something or mean something currently at this point in time, which, you know, I get that the poor performances make this match. But don't underestimate how important those, those star power is, simply because a huge amount of the Royal Rumble is the crowd reaction to who's next out of the curtain. So mm. it matters so much when the wrestlers come out and they mean something to the crowd. And also how important the commentary is as well. As we've said, the star power, the star power is a great thing. But in the rump, in a rumble match, there isn't actually ever hardly any good wrestling as such. And so the importance that one of the most story storyline driven matches, and it'd be so interesting. I was I was going to, but I couldn't be bothered. I was gonna watch it again with the commentary off and see how it translates because. So much of that, and that's why Gorilla Monsoon, and in particular Bobby Heenan, are so good in this because they sell the importance of every single thing that happens in the match. And it's just if you ever want to watch a a way to tell a story via commentary from from the commentator's booth in, in a wrestling match, this is what you need to watch because it is an absolute masterpiece for Bobby Heenan. Indeed, number seventeen then is Jim Duggan who comes out. This is perhaps a very mini. A lull then for the next few entrants. Jim Duggan's number seventeen. You get some, you get some, you get a crowd interest, absolutely. But there's nothing much that happens in the ring for the next few entrants. Put it this way. Um, any, any, any comments with, about Haxel? He's just so over. <laughs> yes, he is. Over. He is so over. It's. I can't really get my head around it because, like, his whole thing is. Just not really very good. But he's got the USA thing going for him, hasn't he? And he's got I a two by four. Yeah, yeah, which he fires like a rifle at a couple of people, which is nice. It's a simpler time, wasn't it? Yeah. It's a simpler time. That I, I think that is absolutely right. It, it go, I would go back to the Road Warriors, and I think Jim Duggan's another case of this. Present the wrestlers well, and people will get behind them. It's really that simple. Well, well and also the next person who comes in, Who's making his third appearance? Yes, yes. Yeah, he is three for three. You, you'll have to tune in next week to see if he, uh, if he, if he makes an appearance. And uh, IRS comes down. Big Mike Rotunda, mm-hmm. Bray Wyatt's dad. The heat he gets. <laughs> I mean, for a start, there's the heat from the crowd. And the heat from what he's wearing must be extraordinary because it occurred to me, I've noticed this every time I've seen him have a match. He's wrestling in braces. Yep. I can mm. trousers, a shirt, a tie, what look like shoes. <laughs> he's probably wearing socks as well. And <laughs> underpants. How hot must he be? I'll be honest, guys, I was going into a bit of a dark place at this point in the match because I was getting worried that we were going to have to do a podcast about talking about IRS. And thankfully, my <laughs> prayers were answered. I was like, oh, thank God. Thank God we kept it pushing. We got IRS again for one more week. He's a, he is our unofficial mascot. 
big uh, Irwin. Yeah. I, I mean, it is amazing. We've watched three different shows from three different years, spanning five years, um, from two different promotions, and we've managed to see this guy in every single one. Yeah. And you'd have never expected this guy to be the one you saw in all three of those shows. No way. The one consistent. Well, yeah, and to be fair, he is probably the greatest worker this ever lived. <laughs> so it's, it's quite understandable that we'd see him. Yeah, sorry, I need to rephrase that. He's the greatest worker that's ever imitated a tax man <laughs> in history. That's what, that's what I meant to say. Sorry. I'm a particular fan of his classic with Jeff Jarrett at WCW Sold Out oh, 1997. Oh, what a, I, I've actually watched that a few times this week just to relive it. That's <laughs> good. It was good. Um, number 19 is a man we've already spoken about a little bit this, uh, today. Um, Jimmy Snooker comes out to the ring. Um gets a pretty good reaction from the crowd as you'd expect from someone who, who again had been very important in the past um of the wwf any any further comment on snooker no okay fine let's move on because uh, number 20 is the undertaker who immediately clotheslines jimmy snooker out of the match and so have it, snooker we can move on from him pretty quickly um reckon, reckon snooker stiffed him on the bills for his misses <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. And so, do they wrestle at WrestleMania 8? No, WrestleMania 7, they'd already wrestled at WrestleMania. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, Snook Snooker was way, way, way past his best as a, as a performer by this point. Um, and um, that's probably why he was only in for a few minutes. Then we get number 21, which is Macho Man Randy Savage. And I thought this was really clever, the way they brought him in, because just as he, he runs to the ring in pursuit of Jake Roberts, but Roberts cleverly ducks out of the ring and kind of hides for a few moments mm. as Savage is then looking around for him, can't find him, which I think was convincing <laughs> because I think the camera did, the camera or the director did quite a good job here because you just didn't kind of you didn't you as a viewer were like hang on where is jake the stick roberts he seems to have gone missing um and then of course the minute jake roberts um was kind of um caught up or or, or tied up with another another competitor in the match roberts then came back in and, and attacked savage um thoughts on on randy savage oh it's just amazing i love randy savage oh, he's one of my favorites from the best ever um again it's it's weird i i Again, he's past. His, he's still very good at this stage, but he's, again, I think he's past his best, in my opinion. Um, they kind of peaked around the, the beginning of the end is kind of at the end of end of his heel run, I think, with Sherry. Um, but I I love Randy Savage, and he's just he's got these little these just little things that he does, doesn't he? Just the way he moves around the ring, the way he walks, the way he hits people with moves, the way he sells. He's just he's just magnificent, and he's in the Rumble for for quite a while. And I'd be lying if I said. He, he had a particular standout performance, um, but it's just having Randy Savage in any match is always going to be a bonus for me. Yeah, again, another well, shot for the shot, another shot for the star power as well. We've got, um, you know, Randy Savage again, one of the biggest stars from the last ten years in the Rumble to add to all the other stars that we've got. The the one, and it's a very small gripe really, because the commentators cover it pretty well, is that he leaps over the top rope to yeah. get. To, to Jake the Snake, which, in fairness, the crowd don't, I don't think, the crowd, I think the crowd are so excited, I don't think they mm. notice. So it, it doesn't tarnish anything. 
And it's the kind of thing that if the commentators had ignored it, I would have probably just been like, oh, yeah, OK. But I think they cover it quite nicely. I wonder if that was, do you think that was a, a, a deliberate choice? Or do you think he just didn't think about it and just got hopped out of the ring? I, like, cause I it, think, seems, it seems very odd and a very odd thing to happen. Well, because he used to do that, didn't he? I think like that was something that he did. So I guess he just reverted to type. And it kind of played into the fact that he was so worked up that he wanted to get Jake Roberts. He didn't care how he did it. And also it helped that obviously he wasn't pinned to win the match. So it didn't really matter. Yeah, I agree. I don't think they meant to do this. I think he absentmindedly jumped over the top rope because he, he you're right, old man. I think he, he did, he could do this. He did jump over the top rope occasionally. And I think he just did it you know, out of habit, because I, I going back to what you were saying, Tom, about how, you know, how great Savage was. I just think he's so, so in the moment, like he just so does. He's so intense. He does seem to just live in the moment of the match that's going on. And I think that's just what happens. He just jumps over the top. And as you said, the co- the commentators um, cover it quite quite well. They just to sort of go, oh, there's actually a, a rule in the Rumble that um, if you throw yourself out, you're not out of the match. You're still in. Um, so I think I think they're fine um, at the time. So yeah, I, th- I think it was it was okay. But you're right, I don't think they quite meant to do it this way. Number twenty two is the Berserker. Who uh, it, there's not a lot to say about the Berserker except I think that he's he could have been a bit of a cult favorite. The Berserker. I just the way <laughs> the way he sort of says huss all the time over and over again. Yeah. I think in another promotion or another time, the fans would have been doing that along with him. I really think they like if he presented him as a baby face, everyone would be like huss. Huss, huss, along with him as the match. I think it'd be great. I think it'd be really good, especially if they did it every time you hit someone. Do you know what I mean? Like you hit someone and everyone goes huss. It would have been. I think it would have worked really well. He'd be over at NXT. He would be. Yeah, he would be. Yeah. Well, to be fair, unless he's dead, it's not too late. Um. Well, I, you've got a fifty-fifty chance, old man. So. Yeah. Um, you're in luck, my term, mate. The, the, the spry young age of sixty-one. He could still make his uh, NXT debut. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Bring him back. Bring him back. Um, 23 in the match is Virgil, um, who doesn't do an awful lot, unfortunately. Um, Thank God for that. He's bloody useless. Get him out. <laughs> this is old man's least favourite wrestler, I think, is Virgil. That's oh. twice, two weeks in a row, and he's absolutely slated him. He's just terrible. But again incredibly over yeah yeah like, obviously he's uh i don't know when he was feuding with dbrc well he was feuding with dbrc pretty much the whole time he was wrestling but they absolutely love him they absolutely love him to be fair yeah his feud with dbrc had happened had mainly taken place over the previous year um so yeah he was still pretty over from that and yeah, yeah can't argue with that 24 was um old iron chic colonel mustafa <laughs> who um, obviously was representing Iraq, even though he's an Iranian um, in real life. And yeah, uh, kind of a leftover of WWE's attempt at cashing cashing in on the Gulf War. So another um, cynical attempt by WWE to make money. um, No, no, it's class. It's never do that. Um, But what it does mean is we have another former WWE world champion in the match. Um, in addition to all the others we've got, Kuro Mustafa. No, 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 we don't. No, we, don't. <laughs> we don't have another. We've got we've got 
Colonel Mustafa in the match. Sorry, never, I apologise. I apologise. Um, uh, at some point during this period, Colonel Mustafa is eliminated, but I didn't see how he was eliminated. Um, and in 25 in the ring is Rick Martel, the model on, old, man's, right. old man's favourite. So we've gone from old man's worst oh. wrestler ever, Virgil, oh, to apparently old man's favourite. So do you want to kind of wax lyrical about Rick Martel again? He's just brilliant. And he, he's wearing his pink garb. So the reason why I feel like I need to give the uh, give the listeners the reason why I love Rick Martel so much. So I used to collect, when I was a child, used to collect the wrestling cards, as I'm sure many of our people listening did. And I had a few versions of the Rick Martel one. So on the front, you'd have a picture and then on the back there'd be some facts about them so it'd be like their height their weight where they were from and their finishing move yep and the picture on the card was rick martell doing a boston crab on someone but he had his proper like the model rick martell facial expression and i always loved it and i always (laughs) always had a soft spot for rick martell since then we all know um, about your soft spots. Wow, you do. Well, to be fair, it wasn't so soft when Rick Martel turned up. I'll tell you that much. That <laughs> he's sexy bastard. Um, and uh, 26 in the match is the immortal Hulk Hogan. Hogan comes in, clotheslines the Undertaker immediately, um, backdrops Berserker out as well, and then Virgil and Duggan eliminate one another. Also, Hulk Hogan um, is in the match, Tom. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't know what to say about Hulk Hogan, to be perfectly honest. That hasn't been said a million times before. Like, it's it's one of those weird things as well. But like I said, touched on earlier, but he's such a heel, right? And we'll cover it at the end as well. But truly, the truly despicable man that everyone loved for some reason. But the, the tide's starting to turn, isn't it? I find this bit. He's still quite over. But you, it's not quite the kind of, it's not like the furore after, over, after Hogan that there was before, the, you know, the years prior to this. And they're starting to starting to turn a little bit. I mean, I always kind of thought of him probably in, you know, you know, like when you get those, you get to like a teenager and you're like, oh, I don't like that because it's popular and everyone else likes it. <laughs> like, I think I've got this idea in my head of Hogan being a bit shit, but he's not. You know, not. There's a reason, there's a reason why he, drew so much money and was and was so hot for so long he is genuinely a very good worker whilst he might not be the most technical kind of hand in the ring he he can get the crowd going like very few in the history of this can well i think this goes back to what i would say about piper in the legion of doom which is that you don't judge hulk hogan on his ability in the ring or his technical quality in the ring you judge him on how good he was at his principal job which was making money and he's yeah. phenomenal at doing that um and not only that but actually he's better in the ring than people give him credit for or he was capable of being better in the ring than people give him credit for um if you watch anything of his when he wrestles in japan you'll see actually he takes it up a notch because he knows that that's what background in, needs him to do requires from him for him to be a major star there he knows that in america he doesn't need to do it he simply does not need to put himself you know through anything he doesn't have to put himself through any kind of physic physical um you know difficult stuff he just he just does what he needs to do um and i think 
I think is the mark of someone who understands the business very well. Now, do I like him? Obviously not. He's a, a bit of a dickhead, quite frankly, uh, as a as a person. But that you have to separate that from his ability as a as a person who who ultimately understands the business as well as probably anybody has done over the last thirty years. Yeah, the main thing that struck me was that he kept his t-shirt on. <laughs> he did. <laughs> and then um, when, when he eliminates the Undertaker, the Undertaker immediately just rolls his eyes and goes, uh, and then just walks back quite slowly. And then playing into what Tom was saying about Hogan being an absolute shit in the rain, he just starts choking people with his T-shirt, choking anyone that moves. But then that T-shirt does the rounds. It does. Later on, you see IRS choking. Someone over there. Have you got uh, have you got a note thinking to talk about IRS's elimination? Um, I don't know. Maybe not actually. IRS. I can't remember at what point of this, but IRS is eliminated via his tight. Yeah, I have. I have Simpson. got that note. I have got that note. It's towards the end of the match. Um, uh, sorry, jump the shark there, but still disgraceful. Um. Yeah, so so Hulk Hogan's out. In, sorry, he's in the match. Um, Twenty-seven is Skinner, which uh, caused old man some degree of pain when he found out that De- Doink the Clown, the second Doink the Clown, was this this particular person. I actually felt quite bad for him. He's the only person I can remember in the match who doesn't get any reaction. <laughs> and I think, to be honest, that's probably why he's put where he is after Hogan. Because they know the crowd are going to lose their shit when Hogan comes out. And they're like, we can't keep this up. So let's, let's chuck Skinner out there. The alligator man. Indeed. Um, number 28 is Sergeant Slaughter. And Skinner is eliminated shortly after that point. So Sergeant Slaughter comes in. We've got another former world champion in the match. Um, Sergeant Slaughter... Um, obviously, had been world champion in uh, 1991 after uh, as part of WWE's Iraq War tie-in. Um, any thoughts on sorts? <laughs> any, any thoughts on slaughter? Can we, can we call it the, the WWF's tasteful Iraq War tie-in? <laughs> yeah, why not? Love, I just love the thought of them going to the like military and just going, "Oh, should we do a little tie-in?" And like, what are, you, "What are you on about? Well, we got slaughter. We're going to turn him heel. Yeah, do you fancy?" You Spin-off, mate. Yeah. Iraq War spin-off. Um, and 29 is Sid Justice. I tell you what, he's over, but also, did you see? Did you see the fantastic nip-up that he does before yes. clothesline Ric Flair? Like, yes, it's it's like, awesome. bloody hell, that is really impressive from a guy your size. Oh, also, sorry, go about this. IRS skins the cat. He does. He does do that, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I do, do you know, I was like, this is phenomenal athleticism <laughs> the tax man. Wonderful stuff. That's why he's the fucking goat, I tell you, boys. He's <laughs> IRS, IRS is in there for 27 minutes. He has a good stint. Stick that, that in your pipe. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. This is this is his kind of. This isn't long before he's returned to WWE after a long time away. Um, and uh, so I imagine they were looking to put him over. This is this is Sistine Chapel. <laughs> <laughs> Number thirty then is the Warlord, um, or oh. Steve Aust- or Steve Austin on steroids, as I like to call him, um, <laughs> and uh, that's that's our lot. So that's the thirtieth entrant. Do you want me to run through the rest of the match, or have you got anything specific you want to say about Warlord? 
It's just a very odd choice to be at number 30, isn't it? And also, why did they split up the Powers of Pain? I don't get it. Like, Yeah, there's a few weird things there. You're right. Um, I think Warlord... Well, in terms of number 30 entrance, this is something that they did a lot back in the day. Like we spoke about... Um, who was it? Crush was number 30 in the 95 Rumble. The year mm. before that had been Adam Bomb. They always seemed to put out a really big guy at the end oh, so, that the, so that the babyface commentator can say, this guy's going to win the match because he's the freshest and he's big mm. and therefore he's going to win. Um, he's usually a heel as well. Um, it just seemed to be the way they did things and I guess Warlord was the one wrestler they had left. On the point of why they split up the powers of pain, who knows? Who can answer that question? Yeah. Um no, nothing more. Yeah, go through the rest of the match. Right, so what we had is um, we got Flair and Hogan have a little bit of a fight on the outside um, where Hogan suplexes Flair um, on the on the mat outside, so he's taking more punishment, but he got up pretty quick. He didn't sell it for very long. Um, Slaughter is then thrown to the corner at about a thousand miles. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> God, that fucking poor That's bastard. Unbelievable. Oh, brutal. It is absolutely one of the most brutal eliminations from a Royal Rumble you'll ever see. Um, God. Hogan then hits a big boot on Flair in the ring now. Uh, Meanwhile, Piper throws out IRS by pulling on his tie and throwing him out, as you mentioned. Mm. Yeah, IRS (laughs) didn't win it, uh, uh, much to the chagrin of uh, of, uh, us as the kind of IRS fan club now, I assume. Hogan and Sid team up together to throw out the Warlord, and then Sid just nonchalantly pushes out Rick Martel and Roddy Piper are fighting with one another. Savage goes out after a running knee by Ric Flair, um, and then we were down to just Sid, uh, Flair, and Hulk Hogan. Now, this is where kind of the story kicks in. So Sid throws out Hulk by sneaking up from, from behind him as Hulk's trying to get Flair out, and Sid throws him out over the top rope. Hulk Hogan's angry. He's not happy that he's not kind of won the match. And he's arguing with Sid, which is allowing Ric Flair to um, recover. Hogan grabs Sid by the arm. Um, Flair jumps up behind Sid, throws him out and um, with help, with Hogan's help. And Flair is the winner and world champion. Um, after the mo- match, Hogan and Sid have to be held apart as they um, look to go after one another. What what stuff within all that do you want to do you want to pull out and, and kind of talk about? I think that the end of it is an absolute shambles, if I'm being honest. Wow. Okay. I, I think I think that the, the Hogan, like Sid Vicious is there, quite apologetic. He's there. Listen, listen, mate, I had to go. Every man for himself. You know the rules. <laughs> Get involved. You know what I mean? Don't don't buy a fucking ticket if you don't want to play, mate. Or whatever weird variation of that expression you want. <laughs> and then and then and then he pulls him out of the ring. So that's a proper prick thing to do. Proper yeah. thing to do. And then rather than focusing on. Ric Flair. Now I know we get that amazing promo afterwards, but you don't. There's no time. Ric Flair doesn't even get handed the belt until later on. Like they make no. Um, considering WWE have got an amazing WWF, have got an amazing kind of flair for kind of pomp and celebrations and circumstances, all that stuff. There's just none of that here. Instead, you get Hulk Hogan and Sid Justice arguing with one another. And to no conclusion at all. And then you go backstage where you see that admittedly very good interview with um, Gene Oakland and, and when he gets given the belt. But like, if you're in the crowd, that must have been such a flat, disappointing ending. I think you got to remember, this is a time when WF didn't like to end the live show on a down point. And the down point of Flair 
celebrating with a belt at the end of the show would have, as he was a heel, perhaps wasn't the way they thought was the right way to end the show if they were going to give them anything to celebrate. And I imagine what happened for the live crowd is that after they'd split up Hogan and Sid, Hogan then did a spot of posing in the ring for the live crowd to celebrate and, you know, do his usual posing stuff. So I think on that count, that's why they did it this way around, because this, as I say, at the time, look at the Survivor Series that came, you know, a few months before this, Hogan loses the belt, but that's not the last match of the night. That's the third, third match of the, of the, of the night. And the last match has got the big boss man and Legion of doom against IRS and the natural disasters, just so they can have a baby face win the last match of the show. And I think that's what this is about. It's just, we need to leave the crowd on a high note. And they considered Hogan posing in the ring, a higher note than seeing flair with the belt in the ring. I get that in, in terms of, perhaps wanting to put flair over as big as you you possibly can it's not the best but i think it's for the benefit of the live crowd and of course they're setting up the wrestlemania 8 main event between hogan and sid so there's a number of reasons why i think they do it the the thing that struck me is uh, like tom said i i hated it i i don't remember it being quite as bad as it is okay and flair looks so pissed off like, he isn't even hiding it when he's walking back. He is glaring. Like, he's staring a hole through Hogan like, as he walks off. And it just, um, yeah, just left a little bit of a sour note. And to be honest, I didn't actually think the Rumble match was as good as I'd remembered it. It's, Controversial it's take. I could see on your face you were scared to even say it out loud. Yeah, it's... It is, it's very good in terms of a rumble match, but I can remember it being like an hour, whatever it is, an hour and X minutes just falls to the wall, which was probably the uh, the ignorance of youth. But yeah, I, like you said about leaving the uh, the audience uh, that are there on a bum note, left me on a bum note. Well, I mean, I I can I can understand it, but I think. One of the reasons people look at this match as being such a classic is that fair interview after the match. Like, I think that is the iconic moment. If you see a picture on social media about, uh, that's to, to show this match, you you show the Ric Flair backstage with mm. with with almost tears in his eyes um, as he as he's cutting that promo. And I actually think that that's what makes this match is the promo at the end almost is that it, because it's so convincing because he, he delivers it so believably. Um, and I think Heenan and Perfect also do their bit to make it kind of a really cool moment. Um, so I, I completely understand why people would be disappointed that you don't see Flair celebrating in the ring after the match. But if he did that, you wouldn't get the promo. And the promo, I think, is what people really remember this for, or at least it leaves everybody at the end thinking, wow, that was a really good match, because he cuts that promo. Um, there is a, there's obviously the phenomenal uh, mean Gene as well, where he starts the interview and he goes, sister yells at someone off camera, you put that cigarette out right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing. And I wish I knew who he was talking to. Yeah. And he's also given them the daggers afterwards as well. Yeah. Not just that yeah. moment. He's like, he's, con- he's constantly got his eyes on them. Like as if, as if they're not doing what he said. It's really yeah, it's brilliant. Um, there's, and there's a bit that I love in it where like, uh, so Ric Flair does his bit that is brilliant. You know, the tear in my eyes, the greatest moment of my life. And then um, Bobby Heenan does his bit afterwards as well. And then I just love the bit where Mr. Perfect goes, you know, 
I hate to say we told you so, but and then Bobby Keenan joins in, joins in, even go, but I told you so, and it's amazing. It's really really cool. They very much play their part. Okay, so before we do our roundup of the whole show in terms of what we think, and we've got the game as well, so don't forget that. Should we just take one extra little break, um, give ourselves a little bit of a refresher, and we'll and we'll come back in just a second. All right, by virtue of winning the Royal Rumble, we have a brand new World Wrestling Federation champion as the press watches on at this time to present the title belt to the new champion, our president, the distinguished Jack Tunney. Congratulations, Ric Flair, on becoming the undisputed champion of the World Wrestling Federation. Let me just say, after view distorting the belt to proclaim me the real world champion, I'm going to tell you all with a tear in my eye, this is the greatest moment in my life. When you walk around this world and you tell everybody you're number one, the only way you get to stay number one is to be number one. And this is the only title in the wrestling world that makes you number one when you are the king of the WWF. You rule the world. Think about it like that, Mr. Perfect. Guys, the brain. Let's give a big one. You did it. I was never so impressed with anything I've ever seen in all my life. He went out there for over 60 minutes, never took a back step, took it to Hogan, took it to The Undertaker, took it to whoever got in that ring. That's why he is, hey, Bobby, call now, the real world's heavyweight champion. We're not the kind of guys that say, we told you so, but we told you so. <laughs> okay, very good. Rick Flair, you have made world... Put that cigarette out. You have made World Wrestling Federation history here tonight. It's the greatest moment of my life. I want to jump. I want to party. But I got to tell you like this. For the Hulk Hogan's and the Macho Man's and the Pipers and the Sids, now it's Ric Flair. And y'all pay homage to the man. Woo! <laughs> I love it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up. We hope you have enjoyed your Royal Rumble. For my broadcast colleagues, Gorilla Monsoon, Bobby the Brain Heenan, Sean Mooney, Mean Gene Okerlund, saying so long from the Knickerbocker Arena in Albany, New York. Okay, so welcome back once more. Um, now, Tom, before we go any further, I know that you specifically want to talk about the the sort of photos that that sort of end the show. So, uh, as WWF occasionally did at the time, they uh, kind of showed stills of the the matches that had taken place earlier in the night. Uh, Tom, what's your what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so it kind of yeah just kind of goes through a little narrative of the night and things that happened. He says we're going to start with some of the highlights of some of the best action we've seen from it. And one of them is uh, Jameson kicking the genius in the ass. <laughs> You've got the need to put that in there. It's a lovely yeah. little one. And I forgot I... to talk about that when we, we covered the Bushwackers Beverly yeah. Brothers match. But I think that's probably because that probably just sums up, sums up how um, little I thought of, of it, to be honest. Well, and also the other thing about the, uh, the photo montage at the end is that the bass line of the music <laughs> over it is phenomenal. <laughs> phenomenal okay so we've we've watched the entire show um what are our thoughts overall i'm gonna i'm gonna start i think this week um just because i also didn't really give any thoughts on the rumble overall as a match and i think 
I think the interesting thing for me, the, you know, thinking about what you said, old man, where you said you didn't think the match was as good as you had remembered. I actually thought it was better than I'd remembered. I went into this a little bit cynical that this was the best Royal Rumble match of all time. And I, I wouldn't necessarily say I think it is the best Royal Rumble match of all time for definite. I think there are one or two that certainly contend with it. But I did really get a real appreciation for why that is considered to be the case. I thought just first of all, I thought the start was really good. I just loved the way they came out of the blocks really fast with David Bushmith, Ted DiBiase's early um, elimination. And then DiBiase was effectively replaced by Flair in the match for the rest of the match. Um, and then we had some really kind of good entrance early on, Shawn Michaels, Tito Santana, for example. Um, and then, as I say, just the, the, the amount of star power in the match for me just carries it through. And I do think that's such an important part because of the fact that nearly all of it is just entrances, especially these days where you actually have the, 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 entrance music as well that is such a big part of what uh, of the what the royal rumble match is um all the former world champions you've got in there sergeant slaughter hulk hogan you know you've got um others as well that i can't remember off the top of my head um but you've got flair and you've got piper you know massive stars sid justice is a main event guy sergeant um you know we've already spoken about sergeant slaughter but you know randy savage is one of those other former champions undertaker's a former world champion by this point as well you've got jake roberts in the match you know, there are just so many big stars and it carries all the way through. There's some great stories. They build up the Hogan Sid thing off the back of this. They incorporate the ongoing feud between Savage and Jake Roberts, um, which I, I think is all a massive part of when there's a good rumble is those extra small bits that kind of just that are that, that help add to the overall narrative which is this amazing performance from rick flair and it is considered by some people to be kind of rick flair's last really genuinely legendary performance and having watched it this time i think i'd be inclined to agree because i think at the start of the match interestingly my wife said to me oh rick flair he's i don't like him he's really slow but as the match goes on you realize the reason he's been slow is going to be there for a full hour and he performs for that full hour fights with pretty much everybody as a little spot with every single person as the big boot up from Hogan and the stuff outside the ring uh, has the stuff with you know, face faces face to face with the undertaker as a few moments with Kerry Von Eric and with, um, and with one or two others. It's, I just think it's a really amazing performance. The undercard. Look, I think it's, I think the first match is great. I think the rest of it's a little bit forgettable, to be honest with you. Um, the Intercontinental Time match was, I thought, just a little bit short, but I understand why they did it. The other two tag matches, I thought, I, I, they certainly never will be revisited by me again, I would imagine. But yeah, overall, the main event was was cracking. I thought it was a very good show. I'd give it 3.7 out of 5 if we're continuing to do the decimal points. Um, and the match tonight is obviously the main event. Uh, old man, your thoughts? So I won't uh, dissect the rumble because I think you've done it very eloquently. I do. I it just that I think as a whole show, it's magnificent. But just so I did it in a couple of chunks, and I think watching the rumble stand alone kind of made a difference to how I felt. I think because when I've previously done it, previously watched this show. I've watched it all in all in one go. So however long it is, two and a half hours or whatever, I've watched it all in one go. I just think that because I'd say, so it's an hour of the rumble, I'd say 35 minutes of it is absolutely tremendous. 
I think the drop-off is so big because of how good the other stuff is. I think watching it as a standalone match, it just kind of, yeah, it just, just missed the mark. And as Tom and I alluded, uh, said earlier, I hated the end. And I think that really soured it. I'd completely forgotten how horrendous it is just to watch Hogan and Sid try and half-assed try and get at each other and then seeing how angry Flair looks. And then obviously it ends on the Flair promo, so it is good. I'd actually, in spite of all that, I'd give the show a 3.9 out of 5. Or a 7.8 out of 10, depending <laughs> on how, how you want to do it. What about you, Tom? I go, I'm go. i not going that far deep into the decimal places that you voice. I'm going, I'm going three and a half. Three yeah. and a half. Um, uh, again, like you said, the undercard is what it is. Um, you know, there's there's not much to write home about it, but the, the rubber match is, is great. My favourite thing about the entire thing, though, is Bobby Heenan. Um, I could, I could just, I could, if I could, I would just download that as an MP3 and just listen to it because it's so good, it's so entertaining. Um, I, I, I think he, I think he, he is the true star of the show. And again, if you talk about matches, yeah, the Rumble match is the best one, and it's a great way to kind of. I think part, of the, I think part of the reason, and I'm sure I read this in in Flair's book when I read it years ago. I think part of the reason why he comes in at number three is to give him that opportunity to kind of showcase himself and sell himself to people who might not have been as familiar with his with his prior work um and i think it certainly does a great job at solidifying that i don't hate the ending as such as 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 much as old man did but I don't, i'm not a big fan of it but i think the if the goal of the match was to crown rick flair as the guy it does that despite yeah. the fact that they try not to do that with the ending that they do that's fair enough it's fair enough um, now, before we get to the game, there is one more talking point from this show that I'd like to go over. And it's actually about how it pertains to WrestleMania 8, because I think this I don't I haven't listened to any kind of podcasts by someone like Bruce Pritchard, for example, about WrestleMania 8. But I imagine there's a huge story behind this in terms of how it was booked and what was originally planned, because we know already Michaels and Gennetti was supposed to happen there. It didn't happen because of Gennetti sacking. I can only imagine at one point that Hogan Flair was supposed to headline WrestleMania 8, but that obviously didn't happen because Hogan faces Sid and Flair goes on, on to face Savage. Now, surely Savage was supposed to face Jake Roberts at WrestleMania. It makes per- they've, they've had this massive feud that hasn't really been resolved by this point. Surely Savage and Roberts are supposed to face one another. The Undertaker's still a, a, a heel by this point, and he becomes a babyface in time for WrestleMania 8 so that he and Jake Roberts can face one another. There's just so much about that show that i think seems to change at some point between i don't know the late later part of 1991 and 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 wrestlemania itself i mean it just feels like for me that there's something going on there or there's there's some major restructure that happens maybe shortly before the rumble that that leads them to where they end up going i can't help but think that hogan didn't want to wrestle flair that i that i mean that's from everything you've kind of read and heard about the way politics and protect himself and stuff i can imagine he just didn't want to wrestle flair i reckon that's that's a big change in everything 
Well, the, the thing is about that, I mean, I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that. The only thing is that, that Hogan and Flair did do some matches on, on house shows in house like shows, yeah. the, the latter part of Night One, and it didn't do the numbers that WWE were expecting. They weren't as successful as they had hoped. Um, and that was a, that is often cited as one of the reasons why that match didn't happen. The other one is that Hogan, aware of the steroid scandal that was about to come down on the WWF, um, wanted out he wanted to get away from the cameras he wanted to move and he also wanted to obviously pursue his, his acting career further um but mainly he wanted to just protect himself from all the heat that was about to come down on the company and wanted to get out of the way and i guess there was a concern that you can't have hogan go out on a loss against a, a heel especially if that's the main event of wrestlemania like by this point let's not forget a heel hadn't won the main event of wrestlemania um so again that was a sort of uh, uh, an unlikely thing so I, I i whilst i completely imagine that is maybe part of it there feels like there's more to that story than just that i don't know that's just my thought well i listened to a podcast with a friend of the show bruce pritchard <laughs> where he says that uh <laughs> that apparently they didn't i think the wording they used was they they didn't gel when they had their house show matches right and obviously the um non-friend of the show comrade thompson <laughs> apparently he's blocked us on all social media can't, he, can't um, blame him. yeah he obviously chucks out some of the stuff that tinky has just chucked out and it's all poo-pooed by bruce pritchard but i think the the most likely thing would appear to be that like you said tinky that the steroid scandal is coming also, Hogan probably doesn't want to lose. Mm. I'd imagine he doesn't want to lose anyway. And also, you don't. The whole narrative going into that match would have been that Ric Flair is the wrestler as well, and Hulk Hogan is not. So Flair had come, like his reputation was that he was a great wrestler, and Hogan's wasn't necessarily like we've alluded to through the show like he's he's better than i think people remember him and he's not as one dimensional but flair was infinitely better and had a reputation of having one hour broadways every night for 26 years in a row <laughs> and i think yeah the thought would have been that well hogan can't handle him and it's two big egos for, for one of them to lose. Yeah, maybe. It's, it's such a shame because I think the, the, the a card that would have already Hart and Piper, but also would then have Savage and Roberts at the end of this incredible feud that they're having, Hogan versus Flair um, as well, um, that just feels like a much more, uh, just a better show than I think we ended up getting at WrestleMania 8. And I think it's a shame that it didn't happen. But yeah, we go. It, it, it also feels like, which is, quite surprising for wwe there's a lot of money left on the table that they could have made because i think like the idea that the matches didn't work in house shows i mean i i can't imagine the house show numbers they were drawing were thousands and thousands at this time like you're still going to have millions of people who would want to see hogan and flair go at it in a wrestling sense, not in a sexy <laughs> sense. Yeah, it's, it's a strange one. I don't, I don't fully understand it myself, but it just, it just does seem like there's, there's some, there's an untold story there. Well, I mean, I suppose 
you never say never in the wrestling business. <laughs> Maybe one more time at oh, WrestleMania. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm pretty sure they had an absolute absolute clinic in TNA. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, like, Tinky said that this was probably Flair's last great match. He obviously didn't see his TNA work. <laughs> Clearly not. Which, yeah, which is a loss, especially when he's... Is he climbing up the cage and someone pulls down his pants and starts spanking him? I, I expect so. I expect so. It's awful. Awful. A very sad waste. Let's move on to the game. Um, as uh, as Tom christened it in the first episode of the show. Um, I won't attempt to do the motorhead voice, mainly because I have now got a sore throat. We've been talking for so long. Um but my uh, so it's my turn this week to host the game and um this week you should both be well primed for this one because i'm going to ask you to name members of the new world order and when i say members of the new order i'm not not just talking about the original group that were in wcw i'm also talking about the split hollywood and wolfpack so you can name anyone who was in nwa hollywood anyone who's in nwa wolfpack i'm also talking about the period when there was an elite nwo and a b team nwo which happened in about 99 i'm also talking about the 2000 reunion of the nwo which didn't really include many of the originals and I'm talking about the international section of the NWO and I'm talking about WWE's version of the NWO that um, ran at times during 2002. In total, there are 57 potential answers here. Um, so, yeah, I guess let's start with um, let's start with you, Tom. Scott Hall. Damn it. <laughs> that was my only answer, Nash. damn it. <laughs> OK, yeah, Kevin Nash. Uh, Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Cool. So far, you've got them in order of them appearing as a member of the NWO. Can you keep it up? Our hero and yours, Mike Rotunda. Mike Wall Street. Michael Wall Street, yep. Uh, Vincent. Vincent, yep. Buff Bagwell. I should mention also that I've included managers, valets, and sidekicks and all that stuff as well. So. Oh, lovely. Yes, Buff Bag was correct. Uh, the Disciple. The Disciple, yep. Uh, Eric Bischoff. Eric Bischoff is correct. Uh, Conan. Conan, yep. Sting. Sting, NW Wolfpack, yep. Uh, Giant. Giant, yep. Big Bubba. Big Bubba Rogers. Uh, Lex Luger. Lex Luger is also part of the Wolfpack. Oh my word! Uh, Scott Norton. Scott Norton, yeah. Yes. Uh, Miss Elizabeth. Miss Elizabeth, oh. correct. Struggling. Ted DiBiase. Ted DiBiase is one of them. Yes. DiBiase. Uh, Disco Inferno. Disco Inferno was part of the Wolfpack. Oh Jesus. Uh, six, six, yes. He's he's all coming back to him again. <laughs> the therapy is going to be required once more after this. Uh, Booker T. Booker T was indeed part of WWE's version of the NWO. Wow, he's the last new member of the NWO. Really? Well, actually, that's not true. Second last. Apologies. Oh. Um, Savage. Randy Savage, yep. 
uh, HBK. He was the last new member of the NWO ever, Shawn Michaels. Bloody hell. Uh, I missed that. Uh, oh, I think this is wrong. Chris Benoit? No, afraid not. No, Chris Benoit. Uh, NWO. Uh, Tom, how many, how many more do you think you could name? Um, so I had another two immediately. I had Scott Steiner. Mm-hmm. And I also had Jeff Jarrett. Yep. I think I could have gone. I think I could have gone a little bit deeper, um, but I was starting to reach the end of my tether. Okay. So in addition to the ones that you mentioned in the original NWO, there was the imposter sting. There was Masachono, who was on the sold out show that we oh, yeah, discussed. Um, <laughs> and the great Muta and Hiroshi Tenzan, two of the Japanese members of the NWO. Kurt Hennig and Rick Rude. Oh. Um, Louis Spicoli, who was also Rad Radford in WWF, um, Dusty Rhodes, Brian Adams. Uh, um, hang on, that's, <laughs> I was about to see Meatloaf then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there we go. Um, Dennis Rodman. Um, oh, and, Mozilla. Uh, and Nick Patrick, who both of you should have remembered. Oh, from show. come on. Um, then we had members of uh, the whole. Then we, then we had. Then we had Miss NWO. <laughs> I'm sorry, forgot about her. Um, then in the international group, there was Hiro Sato, Tatsutoshi Goto, Michiyoshi Ohara, Big Titan, who played, uh, it was the, the uh, fake Razor Ramon when he was, uh, when oh, they were around. Uh, Akira. I'm a huge Big Titan guy. <laughs> <laughs> Akira and Satoshi Kojima. Um, then we had the NWO Hollywood members, which were Bret Hart, Stevie Ray, Horace Hogan, Barry Windham, and Mark Johnson, referee Mark Johnson. Um, then we have the NWO Elite. So these are just the additional wrestlers that were in the NWO Elite group. David Flair, uh, Tory Wilson, and Rick Steiner. Then in the 2000 reboot, we had Jeff Jarrett, which you did mention, Ron and Don Harris, Skull and Eightball, Jacob and Eli Blue, whatever you want to call them, um, Medeja, obviously Scott Steiner's uh, valet, Tylene Buck, April Hunter, Pamela Pulshock, and Shakira, who were the NWO girls, apparently. Who the fuck <laughs> all these people? I know, there's loads yeah. of them. That, that is everybody. That is the full list of former NWO members. So, uh, yeah, that well done, Tom. The saddest list of shit so they have ever heard. <laughs> it did get out of hand somewhat, didn't it? Let's be honest, in terms <laughs> yeah. of how many people were involved and how many times it got reformed in the years I, afterwards. I heard an interview with The Big Show where he said he uh, he was in the NWO and he said he suddenly realised that the reason why he was in the NWO was so that he couldn't beat them. <laughs> and that's what they did they just yeah. put everyone involved so that they didn't have to lose to anyone that makes sense that makes sense okay well we've pretty much put the world to rights tonight it will be nearing three hours this show so um oh, sorry guys put yourself put yourself on the back for uh put yourself on the back for for the for getting through all of that especially if you're still with us um if you're still with us you might be willing to go a little bit further with us and that is um and would be very much appreciated in terms of um you're following us on social network. We've got uh, an Instagram and a Twitter account at RWRPodUK. You can also email us with any queries, questions, or uh, uh, anything else you might want to say. Feedback, maybe, at randomwrestlingreviewpod at gmail.com. 
com we'd also appreciate any reviews or ratings that you can give us on your uh, podcasting app of choice guys um as i say thanks for thanks for getting through the epic um podcast that we've just done about Royal rumble 1992 old man any last kind of sign offs you want to you want to put out there no just a big thank you to everyone that has listened and will listen in the future and yeah that's kind of it. I think to say anything else would be churlish, given how much we've uh, we've spoken of this evening. Yeah. Also, just to add that all of the uh, all of the jokes that I made are all allegations made by myself, not by anybody else, so, and probably hold no truth. So please don't call a lawyer because right. I, I can't afford one. People will probably be wondering what you're talking about once I got through with this edit. So uh, <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, and Tom, anything from yourself? Uh, no, again, just uh, echoing the sentiments of both of you. Thank you to everyone who uh, listened to our first episode. Second one's out now as well, about uh, NWO Sold Out, which is a, a, a hell of a show. Um, I don't know why I'm plugging it, because you've already listened to it if you got to this one. So uh, <laughs> um, that's good to see why I'm, I'm not an elite-level broadcast journalist like Bobby Heenan. So, um, yeah, thank you, guys, and uh, see you next week. Indeed. Thank you very much for listening to us. We'll be back next week, but until then, take care. <laughs>